This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hello, everyone. We are here, episode 121. I put, just tune in, because I don't know what we're really talking about, because you know, <laughs> we're on a journey but we, you and I, and good morning to you, Dr. Carr. Love good you. Good morning. Good morning. Love you. Good yes. morning, Professor Hunter. How are you? I am, I, you know, I'm in a, in a very interesting place right now. And I'm, I'm, I must say, you know, I'm happy, you know, when you are in the, in the mid, in the midst of, of developing many different things at once, and then it's all kind of, your life's work is kind of just lining up everything you've ever done you know it's coming together so I'm, i agree i agree it could only happen because of the community that i'm in and the people that i'm now aligned with where you know even the decisions i make in terms of like what projects i take i'm always thinking through this africana framework and i wouldn't have had that language unless we had this space so i just want to again i will tell you every single waking moment how grateful i am for uh your 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 wisdom so that's it yeah thank i want to thank you because we wouldn't be here if it weren't for you and i want to thank you not just for me but for every community everyone that i've been in conversation with and all of those people who have crafted me that that conceptual framework as we talk about all the time is the result of many 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 years of debate and discussion from elders from reading and studying but also from young people it was balanced i was having that conversation midweek with the um, handful of faculty who have been asked by administration to take over the freshman seminar in the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard. And, you know, I have an old soldier's mentality. The, uh, you don't quit your post till relieved. Uh, I hadn't anticipated being relieved so brusquely. Uh, and I suspect that, in fact, I know it was political and and I embrace that, of course, because I understand that our historically black colleges have never the fight for the black university, which began really with the inception of our HBCUs and really even hit a watershed moment in the 60s has never stopped. And it's an ideological debate. It's a political debate. But as I suspected, when they ran into some let's just call it charitably difficulties, trying to grasp the magnitude of what they had been tasked with doing. They asked if I would, you know, cause we're colleagues, let's talk. I said, of course. And I said, but the first thing I wanna, uh, before I ask you what you all have, I wanna assert that when you see me, you don't see me as an individual, you see us. And that framework was developed over, I think 15, well, I think I was responsible for that and then co-responsible for 15 years, 14 or 15 years. And the people who asked me to do it, the Dean who is now an ancestor, James Donaldson, uh, a towering figure, educator, literally and physically big dude, uh, who, you know, just a brilliant brother came out of the days of segregation. And that, and that generation is just about gone. Either their ancestors or their, their, you know, advanced elders. I said, you know, that momentum was driven for what we crafted after Many years of dialogue, many years of trial and error, many years of contemplation, and we were asked to do that. 
by a representative and then representatives of a generation who had done that work. I said, so what you all are doing in many ways reflects the short-sightedness of um, how we often pursue things. Well, I mean, it, it's like you see something and then you say, of course, I can do that. Always, right? Right. I mean, every, I mean, I think it's, <laughs> it's something. He was like, oh, that's not so hard. Of course, I can do that. But you don't see, like you say, the years of time that went in and the community that helped. Because none of us operate, you know, in, in a perfect world, we are all some totals of a whole lot of hands, you know, a whole lot of brains, you know, put into make something and you know somebody's always going to take credit you know whether it's a movie somebody's going to stand up there with that oscar or that emmy or whatever um but the writers rooms and all you know all of the grips and the craft service i mean everybody contributes to make an end product including this right so yeah i mean um, but I, I do want i want i mean i think this really is germane on this so-called july 4th weekend and i was kidding with uh my friend uh shana terrell we did we do this on the last thursday of the month this uh creating the Black Educator Pipelines tied to the Center of uh, Black Educator Development, our, our brother Sharif el Mackey. And now we started Freedom Schools this week. Um, and so I was joking. I said, oh, it's a white Juneteenth weekend is coming up. Uh, I'm sorry, white Juneteenth. I meant July 4th. <laughs> but, but you know, we were talking about that. And I think it's very important what you raise. And the reason, I, the reason I'm thinking about this is because as we're talking about how community makes structure and what i told my colleagues i said i'm available anything y'all want i get you know the syllabus the, the rubrics everything we have uh if and when you run into these major problems here are going to be the problems you have with a 15 to 1900 student course where there's no place on campus that can hold that many students at one time and here's the problem you're going to have with grading here's the assessment and it was you know it was, it was a great conversation but at the end of the day which is fine because the other thing i said was what i have learned what we have learned as a result of classroom work, whether it be a large class like that or small classes, I said, I am emptying all of that into this narrative Nubia space. Let's be clear. I was very serious when I said, we're going to jailbreak the black university. Is it so? And they were like, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's okay if you don't understand. I mean, but it's fine. I mean, because they didn't say they didn't understand, but I suspect a lot of those young people who are going to show up in the fall are going to be in for a rude awakening because I know many of them have been emailing me like, oh, I can't wait. And I said, well, but you can continue over here <laughs> because the illusion is that somehow higher education produces leaders for black communities. You know what higher education does is what higher education does for black people is what it does for everybody. It creates a class of people who can do better for themselves and what this framework that we're talking about this social structure we live in does is encourage individual success and we're going to talk about that in the context of these Supreme Court decisions in terms of July 4th and everything else but the way you began today I think is finally very important because it reminds us that we are all responsible and when and the momentum of memory reminds us that whether you are here as a living individual or you are here as a representative of every th one and thing that you can draw upon who has poured into you, whether you knew them or not, we are making community. Who are we to each other should always be the anchoring thing. And that governance structure category really kind of emerged conceptually 
because it was required, particularly by young people who did not have access to the momentum of memory. And as they gained that access, began to ask questions that the social structure that surrounded them could not answer. And then finally it dawned on them, I should probably be listening to my grandmother more than the mayor. Well, when I engage with the mayor, I'm going to bring my grandmother's wisdom into this because she asked that the, a different mayor a different question 40 years ago. And that's so so uh, it's no distraction. I mean, I celebrate it. In fact, I got more time now. We in this. <laughs> that's what we do. So anyway, I want to thank you. That's where I'm going all the way back. So I'm going to start right there. <laughs> all right. Um, for those of you who this, this is narrative. We're in Nubia. Where yes. We stream uh, live every week. I'm going to be yes. in the chat in a second. Uh, and yes. we're gonna be talking to the Nubians in the chat, which is the only place where we're going to chat because this is a safe place where we can, even if we disagree, we're going to do it with respect, um, which is not always the case in public facing social structures. But, you know, I was talking with Jeffrey Robinson yesterday because I'm playing, you know, we pre-tape for uh, Monday and I've been very diligent to make sure that SiriusXM audience gets new content that they don't get. Re so I was like, look, I reached out to him. I watched again Who We Are, which is a documentary, I think is now available on Netflix that he did a couple of years ago. And it was inspired to your point, um, he became overnight a father to uh, his wife's nephew. And he said, uh, in Seattle, you know, how do I raise a black boy into a black man? I don't know anything about parenting. He's a Harvard educated legal mind. You know, I think he was a legal um, head of the legal defense at the ACLU. Mm -hmm. And it took him down a rabbit hole um, of knowledge that he wanted to impart on this young mind to your point of community, and then realized he himself had been uneducated or miseducated in it. Mm. He, said it mm. he said it pissed him off because number one, I'm, you know, I went to Harvard. They didn't teach me <laughs> these things, right? They didn't teach me these things in high school. So I'm blaming my teachers, but then I have to look at the larger why didn't because my, my teachers didn't know right so at some point you know as that domino falls there's a willful i think right now we're in this anti-crt bull which is you know slogans and stuff but there is an actual ignorance even in among our educators so you know can they be blamed if they don't if, if they're taught to teach and they're never taught these things to teach because the system is designed for us not to know who we are. And that was when the light bulb in his head, he said his head blew off. And then he, he treated it like a legal case. So he got his legal assistant to go like, what else don't we know? And then they started putting all of this stuff together. So it's interesting watching it because it's many of the things we've talked about over the last couple of years uh, in class with Carr. But for him, it's all new. And this is a whole ass educated person who first discovered because he wanted to be in community with this young man. And then he said, I realized that I hadn't talked to my grandmother and she was alive in the 1800s. Right. And oh, I'm gosh. like, and I was, a, I was 11 when she died, which means we could have had a conversation about what she remembered. Right. Goodness. So, so it inspired him to put together this whole, who we are project to encourage people to talk to their elders, young people to sit in community with their elders. And I'm, I was smiling because I'm like, yes, this is, you know, because he said the power of knowing yourself, now you get to challenge everything. Now, you know, I got to arm this young man with the knowledge to go into the school system. You know, you can't just tell me that we had slavery and this happened and the, the war, uh, civil war wasn't about really slavery because here's what the founding fathers and here's what the secessionists said. They said it was about slavery. 
As a matter of fact, Georgia was mad because there was a deal struck that they got to keep their enslaved and then the union reneged on it, Lincoln reneged, and they were angry and rightfully so. And all of that is written and is documented and we should be able to um, not just know it, but understand, again, to your point, that even before enslavement, that's just an interruption in a whole thousands of years of history. So we're well, focused- on, was that Was that point raised? Yeah, well, I raised it, and then I'm you know, about in the, yeah, what yeah, what was that answer to that? Because he, you know, he's from Memphis, and I was like, did you learn about Robert Church Senior? You know, and then we, and did you because you talked about Tulsa, but Tulsa might not have become as thriving without Robert Church Senior. Well, not only might, just right. Didn't well, I know, we, well, we, we talked about that church and them sent them boys out there, no but, question. But you know, like there's there's almost an arrogance that happens when you start knowing stuff and i i want to like caution myself because this is newfound knowledge for me too so who the hell am i to be like wag 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 no but that's the whole point yeah who, who are you not to okay I mean, in other words, right. I, I love i remember that i don't know if you remember uh last week tonight the british comedian talk show guy john oliver you know how he does those and now this sections where he clowns people and he strung together this vignette like two or three minute vignette of people on television leading their conversation with i went to harvard <laughs> so i went to harvard and so i went to harvard law school i went to harvard law. and so I, and I went to harvard and you know our friend ellie does i went to harvard law school and, uh, and so when you said he said i went to Harvard. i mean in other words are you establishing the fact that not only were there silences and it reminds me of an apocryphal uh, piece that is attested to um it's attributed to it's not a test it hadn't been out to my knowledge documented sterling brown who is is, is 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 said to have said the great poet the great washingtonian the great um puncturer of social class sterling brown dunbar high school you know so he was part of that black bourgeoisie his father taught at howard he was born on the campus of howard university he spent his career at howard university but he had this contempt for class so if you you would find sterling brown in the clubs in in in, in dc you would find him in the juke joints and the students knew when mary baraki used to talk about this we go to sterling brown's house he pinned his wife daisy he crack open the liquor liquor we in the basement listen to jazz records and the blues i learned about i learned about bessie smith from sterling brown but he but he could walk in all those class but but he wouldn't do it and so when asked about harvard sterling brown is said to have said harvard has ruined more negroes than good liquor no than bad liquor harvard has ruined more negroes than bad liquor so i mean to lead with him and and, and i don't know him well but i have met brother robinson a couple of times and we were on a call a couple of times with assistant Keech Taipu talking about reparations and i was deeply impressed with his command his 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 kind of range fascinating and i and i gotta now watch this because I, I was aware that there was this documentary, but one of the things I'm kind of selective in terms of when I will absorb something, I'm always, I always enter the space with that governance structure question. So when you ask who we are, my question is, who is we? Who is the we you're talking about? But, but, but I just raised that because when you raise Robert Church, you know, it shouldn't matter who raises it. Cause you ain't you ain't raising that to beat oh. somebody over the head with, <laughs> you know. When I went to Harvard, so in fact, that's a definite. I brought that up. He's yes, what I'm saying, but you you shouldn't you shouldn't hesitate on yourself. Don't put no check on yourself. No, no, no. What I'm saying is that everybody, you know, where whenever they awaken, it's almost like you know when somebody uh, quit smoking. Like I remember my mother quit smoking mm. 40, 50 years ago. And then she was the one, you know, put that cigarette out, you know, like everybody, whoever was smoking, she was the smoke police, you know, because I have now quit smoking. So therefore I will 
tell everyone not to smoke, which is, you know, so it's sort of like I've come into this knowledge. So I'm going to beat everyone over the head with the stuff that I'm just learning. Um, and I'm like, I feel like some of us need to pause and, and I'm talking to myself and sit in it for a minute because as it starts to, you know, develop and come together, you get to see more and more and more. And as you, as it happens, and I have the unique, um, enviable position of having access to you just about every day. And I'll, I'll ask you a question about this. I'll text you something, you respond. And it just, there's a stacking up. But what I was impressed by is that Jeffrey Robinson is still learning. Yes. And, it, and it's that, almost as if that whole, all of that education, and then this is what I kind of saw in his countenance is like, all of this schooling means absolutely nothing so widely ignorant. So I asked him, I said, okay, so we're airing this on July 4th. And I'm playing, of course, um, Langston Hughes, America's Not America. You know, that, that uh, I have, um, I found a poet uh, to read that. And oh, really? Yeah, I mean, you know, on YouTube, it ain't like I went no, out. No, I mean, just going to read it. I mean, you're going to, so let America be America again. Yes, the the yes. poem that John Kerry tried to use in his, remember his presidential yes, campaign? Yes, yes, yes. I, I mentioned that in, in the opening oh, of that. And of course, Frederick Douglass, what, you know, what is the 4th of July to the Negro and all that? Mm. So, you know, so I asked um, Mr. Robinson, you know, does the 4th of July, what does it mean anything to you anymore? And so y'all have to listen to it. But uh, his answer was interesting. Uh, but, you know, and I, and I question everyone because we all mindlessly, to your point, mindlessly, we go to school, we place importance on, you know, the pedigree of the school and, and the, the Ivy League of the school and, and if it's an HBCU, even that, we don't even question, is you know this what? a black space? Is this a black affirming space? Is this a space that's going to imbue in me a love of myself? Outside of the, the, the sororities and the fraternities and the bands, and the, outside of that, what do I come away with? I, look, I, I see you, Island Girl. I see you in the chat. Island Girl said, Howard has ruined more people than bad liquor. Anyway, oh. <laughs> I guess in terms of scale, that will be correct. So, I mean, but not just Howard, all the places. But when you ask that question, it's funny, Tennessee State, I just talked to one of my former students who just uh, who is on the faculty at Tennessee State, my alma mater, and she got a, um, she's on the faculty. They have an Africana Studies uh, degree. They used to have a department at Tennessee State. It's It was the first and uh, to my knowledge, remains the only freestanding department at a historically black college and university degree granting uh, in terms of Africana studies. As it's not the only, obviously Howard is one of the first and Tennessee State joined that. I shouldn't, I misspoke there. Um, but during a round of austerity cuts, the department lost its departmental status to about 20, 20 years ago. Um, I was finishing my PhD, actually, I was home, and the founding chair of that department, Amiri Yassin Al-Hadid, uh, formerly known as Andrew Jackson, he changed his name uh, after I graduated from Tennessee State in 1987. I was going going to see him, he was, he's, in, from so, he's in sociology, retired now, from Alabama, good brother, introduced us to John Coltrane. He came in and played OM one day in class, our Black nationalism class, and you know Coltrane's all up and down the register, the the, the, the the saxophone is wailing into these, you know, African governance structure, Southern African in America raised ears. And to many of us, this was like almost indecipherable. Now, you you know, Coltrane is something you have to grow into. As Wynton Marcella says sometimes with some of this music, you've got to come to it. It's not going to come to you immediately. 
in the out and once the song finished this long range you know song impulse records i know on you know this is the period of pharaoh sanders this is creator has a master plan which has a different but dr jackson looked at us and said if you understand that music you understand black nationalism we looked at each other well, I guess we don't understand black nationalism. So that's why we're here. <laughs> but anyway, many years later, we were still friends. I mean, obviously he's a Jigna. And I hadn't finished my my PhD yet. I was in the course of writing my dissertation. And he said, would you come back to Tennessee State? I said, yeah. And right, it's funny how these things go, how the ancestors kind of move. You I ended up at Howard in part because the dean at Tuskegee reached out maybe a couple of months after I had interviewed for the position at Howard. It could have within the space of a couple of months, I could have been in Alabama. I mean, but I'm saying all that to say that in the context of what sounds like Du Bois's journey. Well no, all all of our journeys though. But, but yeah, specifically Du Bois. I mean, yeah, Booker Washington makes him an offer and uh, he had already accepted Wilberforce and it was a little higher money at Wilberforce. He ends up at Wilberforce. I mean how would the world have changed if Du Bois had been at Tuskegee instead of Wilberforce? Absolutely. In fact I was just uh rereading Adele uh, Logan Alexander's book on her family and so much of her family grew up on the campus of Tuskegee. And when you see those pictures from the early 20th century of her ancestors, what you see is, and of course she is out of DC. So there's a connection there between Dunbar high school, by the way, shout out Paul Lawrence Dunbar's birthday just passed. There's a new book on Dunbar. Um, me and Larry Crow was talking about it. Larry was there at Dunbar's house last week for the Dunbar birthday. But anyway, Dunbar is connection there between Dunbar and Howard and, and Tuskegee, where they all were, and Atlanta University. Now, of course, Clark Atlanta University and the AUC. But I'm bringing all that up to say that when Island Girls said Howard has ruined more Negroes than, than uh, or more people than bad liquor, let me be very quick to under to, to not only co-sign, but to extend that in the spirit and in the vision of what you just said and in the memory to say no HBCU is exempt from ruining Negroes. <laughs> in other words, precisely because of what Brother Robinson is trying to approach. In other words, so it ain't just Howard. It's all, and but, but the reason that we choose the black institutions to work at is precisely because that's where the critical mass of our people in higher education are. So we don't walk away from them. We walk into them. But what we can't do is import the Harvard, Stanford, Yale, University of Chicago sensibility. And what I'm seeing now in higher education, particularly from administrative pressures is exactly that almost attempt yeah it's almost like we're going to curate a blackface version but of course that's something they, they have been indoctrinated to believe that that's the pinnacle no question it's so no question about it always see yourself through a white white lens yes how do you break free from that and i wanted to say this because everybody who has gone to an hbcu and has a degree they're extremely proud including our vice president and you should be because you've accomplished something. And this, this, this conversation is not about you, you know, not about, you know, crapping on any one HBCU or any, it's, it's to say nope. that we all, we have all been miseducated. We have That's all right. been indoctrinated into a white facing, white lensed um, way of knowing. And we need to all, all of us, no matter whether you're melanemic or full of melanin, have to break free from that in order to be really free because how do you have a free mind if it's been been you know beaten into seeing the world through that very narrow very twisted very mediocre you know and then right. and then we, we have a source of pride because we went somewhere and i'm not i don't want to disparage anybody's situation but we have to start to think differently and and do it agnostically not with emotion you know right. well i mean we bring our we bring ourselves to it but you're right we have to 
you know, it's interesting. Um, the 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 outgoing president of Howard University, Wayne Frederick, sent a letter out. It's, it's typical. Uh, yeah, uh, I think the latest he will be retiring is 2024. So between sometime between now and 2024, I'm not sure, but yes, yes, it's yes. Not it's not like this. Well, no, no, it's interesting because I saw, uh, you know, my friend and brother Walter Kimbrough just uh, um, retired from, well, didn't retire. He resigned from um, from Dillard. You know, he's not at Dillard anymore. Yesterday, well, the 30th of June was his last day. And he's doing some interesting things. He's doing some writing, some speaking, some traveling. He just uh, signed on to be a fellow with the University of Southern California Center on Race. He's going to do some stuff around equity, HBCUs, while he's looking around for what he wants to do next. And he actually, in an interview, he was down at the UNCF conference they had uh, last month, and he was talking to Roland uh, Martin. And he said, you know, Janetta Cole told him, that and again i love this momentum of memory walter has been wanting to be a hbcu president since he was in grad school you know what i'm saying in fact he was in grad school at uh miami the university of uh, uh, miami oxford ohio mario was his uh <laughs> was like his one of his students in fact he's the alpha so he pledged he'll pledge mario i mean it's how far back <laughs> he goes so anyway but what walter was saying president kimbrough dr kimbrough he grew up under the guiding hand and vision of another generation of black college presidents samuel du bois cook for example who was very close to and was jagged by benjamin mays i mean so when you see walter you're seeing the momentum of memory he's constantly evoking the genealogy so he said i was sitting with Janetta cole and we know of course dr cole brilliant social scientist anthropologist um, uh one of the young people who uh, vincent harding brought in along with joyce ladner um along with um, Howard Dodson, uh, Walter Rodney came through there, CLR James, you know, the Institute of the Black World coming out of when, after the assassination of Martin Luther King, the students came together in Morehouse and Spelman and Morris Brown and Clark and said, we want this to be the Martin Luther King University. And of course, the Negroes were able to beat them back and keep them separate. It's still the Atlanta University Center, but failing that, Vincent Harding, who was on faculty at Spelman, in the English department, if memory serves me correctly, when Stephen Henderson was in English, Vincent Harding was in history, they come together and create something called the Institute of the Black World after Coretta Scott King asks uh, um, uh, Vincent Harding to take the Martin Luther King Center that comes out of that moment, which he does for a minute, but he's saying it's not, that it can't, okay, I'm going to do this Institute of the Black World. Anyway, I went around the barn to come to this moment. Janetta Cole is one of that young generation that these folk bring in because they are trying to answer the very question that you have raised again, how do we strengthen our institutions and create a different way. So this is the fight for the black university. They couldn't do the black university at the Atlanta University Center. There is no black college or university in terms of this cultural grounding. And so it's very important for us to understand that. And each of the HBCUs and the black institutions beyond that, because we know HBCU is a legal definition, a legal distinction for pre-Jim Crow schools. But I count in terms of black schools, of course, where Larias, Mega Evers, um, where I mean, you know, Chicago State. Anyway, we've seen vestiges, not vestiges, vestiges is the wrong word. We've seen eruptions of this thrust at all of our HBCUs. And there's been this war. There's a constant war because everybody wants us to be free who's working in these places. But this debate over how best to do it has meant that those of us who ground this in an Africana piece 
have always had the roughest road because that threatens the social structure that set up these HBCUs and even informed the black people who set up HBCUs because the idea is you can't win on your terms. And we're going to talk about that in terms of July 4th. Well, anyway, but I, well, I actually want to, um, and I, um, you know, I sit in many different spaces so I can see things. So the way it's set up, if you're a president of any school, your job is to raise money. Should be. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's really the, me. you know, I tell my students, I usually give them a quiz, who's the president of the college. And when they don't know, I was like, well, uh, everything that you have here is because the president has gone out and raised money for it. So you should know who the president of your college is. And how could they not know? They don't. That's they don't. the first difference between an HBCU. HBCU people know who the president because that is bleeding in from the governance structure. HBCUs are often run like the black church. Okay. <laughs> the, pre, the, the the president is the pastor. So even in terms of raising money, there's this, in, anyway, I just, I just think that's uh, interesting I mean, because I that think, is frequently the case. Because I think, you know, many of the students that I teach, you know, they, most of us don't even know the, the person whose street we live on, who it's named for, the schools that we go to, who yes. it's named for. So, I mean, again, there's this kind of like um, willful ignorance or, or maybe just, you know, kind of this, uh, we don't know, we just go to school. You know, we just go to school. We don't know who does what right. and why, why I have this facility. So, you know, but if your job is to raise money and the social structure is telling you uh, this is where the money, this is how you get the money. So let me just ask you this. You get $100 million from this company, $100 million from Mackenzie Sky. You get $10 million from this person, this person. Do you have, um, do you, are you beholden to them? And do, so here's what I think a lot of us do. We, we assume that this money comes with strings. And sometimes it does, but I think we should always challenge the strings. Did you give me this, this money to be a puppet? Did you give me this money to be in lockstep with something, an ideolo uh, you know, ideology that you want me to follow? Or did you give me this money because you respect the HBCUs and you want them to grow? Or you respect these black organizations and you want them to grow? I think we sometimes, and I've watched it happen, so I'm not speaking out of the left side of my butt cheek. I'm saying I've watched people get money and then change their behavior based on what they think the white people that gave them the money expects of them. And oh, sometimes no it means being worse, a worse overseer than any white person could ever be. And I think we should change that too. Like I'm under no illusion that I'm in a space on Sirius XM that I don't own and control, but I'm going to challenge the, the, the box that I'm in every single day to see let me see let me see if you know i remember the first time you came on the show you were like in the break you you could say all of this i was no like question until they tell me i can't i'm going to say all of the things and let's see where the limits are and then when i see there's a limit i'm going to keep pressing that too and you know because we're free right either we're free or we're not aha you sound like h rap brown you either free or a slave and you free I was very much moved by that. No, I think, you know. So what I'm saying, I, I can't necessarily blame the presidents of these colleges because they, if their job, if their edict is to raise as much money as possible, then they're going to, you know, step and fetch it, tap dance, do all of the things. In their minds, they're like, I'm just doing this for this. You know, like we, we lie to ourselves and thinking, well, I'm going to, I'm just, I'm playing both sides, you know. Um, I'm playing, you know, I'm going to be this public oh, yeah. thing the, and then I'm just not checkers. Yeah. People, yeah. And then, you know, you think you're doing that, 
But my Bible says, because you're neither hot nor cold, I spat you out. You can't, you can't be both things in this world. You no. have to well, be really clear about what it is that you are here to serve. There, but therein lies the difficulty, doesn't it? Therein lies the difficulty of life. Therein lies the difficulty of institution building and community building. The reason I raised uh, Wayne, the reason I uh, you know raised the president of Howard is not because not as an icon of of compliance or assimilation or kind of cowtowing, but rather as particularly his letter that he sent out on Friday, July 4th. They do this, you know, sometimes presidents put out letters. In fact, shout out to all the HBCU presidents who have issued statements and they haven't been many. Shout out to the ones who have issued statements to their student bodies, to their faculties, to the alumni and to the public. Uh, David Thomas at Morehouse just did one, for example, one latest one I've seen. Uh, in the wake of the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, assuring their campuses, the campuses they serve, that there will be access and there will be support for access to health up to, through, and including health choices such as terminating the pregnancy for the women students on those campuses shout out to y'all but at any rate the president sent out you know july 4th meeting but he started it with what to the slave is the fourth of july and most of the short letter four or five paragraphs three four paragraphs spoke to douglas's quotes and then the last couple of sentences of the letter is where you find the dilemma and so you know i want to acknowledge and uh, congratulate President Frederick for a letter that, <laughs> you know how it is when you, you know, have left your job, you can really leave, and then you say all the things you want to say. I'm like, I ain't never seen Wayne Frederick write no letter like this, this. I mean, <laughs> me, uh, he and I, two Juneteenths ago, the first Juneteenth of the pandemic, he reached out to me and said, you know, can we put something out on Juneteenth? So, yes, yeah, so I'll write something. As you want to write it together, he said, "No, nah, just introduce it, and it's your letter." So, okay, I go that. You know, as uh, Biggie once said, "Things done changed since then." But I read this letter, and I'm like, "Hmm." But but the, the dilemma he had at the end of the letter is what I suspect Brother Robinson has, even as he continues to learn, and so many other people have. Okay, so if that and Frederick Douglass had it, if this is all true, what do we do about it? And I often liken that metaphorically to you in the car, you driving 100 miles an hour. And just when you get to the point where you got to take one of these ways in the road, it's a fork in the road. You don't know what to do. So you end up driving the car in the ditch. So the driving the car in the ditch moment for us is usually, and because of this, and because we've suffered this, and because we fought against this, and because, you know, and of course, Frederick Douglass in July 5th speech, 1856, is it? What to the slave is the 4th of July, which he gives, uh, you know, Corinthian Hall. He's saying, you know, you know, when you lay the crimes of nations and world history end to end, America reigns without a rival for its crimes. And he's saying, you know, why y'all called me here? This is not a day. You must celebrate. I must mourn. And he, and Wayne 
Frederick quoted that. I said, okay. So now you're going 90 miles an hour. Here we go. Fork in the road. <laughs> and therefore, we know we're fighting for. And then American democracy. <laughs> now you're in the ditch. See, you drove that entire analysis <laughs> into the ditch. Now, he didn't quite do that this time. I'm saying he must be writing from Trinidad. Where is this guy when he's writing this? Because what the governance grounding does is allow us to understand that we have to never lose sight of the fact that while in terms of social class in our governance formations, those of us who can miss one check or two checks, probably not three, probably not two, maybe not one, but at least got a job. Those of you with a mortgage or who paid off your house, those of you got four generations of people in your family who went to college or maybe two generations or you're in the third or second generation, you know, you can probably claw your way into some form of survival in this system that might even yield some comfort. Because again, even when we're working, we must always ask ourselves the question, why are we working? Because ultimately, life isn't about just labor. And so even in that context, those of us in the social class, in, this, in, in our governance formations who can you know, sit down for a minute, we have to ask ourselves, how do our revelations free us? And not just us, not just us and our family and us, no, but everybody else, if there is a we, because the revelations that we have in moments, you know, uh, are not going to help Jalen Walker. He's an ancestor. The police riddled his bodies with bullets. Uh, Land stores killed the police, wounded the police, shot the police. He's in custody. And so one of them is white, one of them is black. Now you can guess which one, because if this were a question on the AC on the SAT or the ACT, all the black people would get it right. It's which one was black, which one is white. White people would say, "Well, I need more. Uh, you don't need no more evidence. You're just naive." They killed the black dude who they say was running from the police, shot him sixty times, and well, shot him sixty times. The white boy killed the police. He's in custody. But I, I, I'm saying all that to say that our revelations are wonderful for us as individuals but they should then yield some collective relief and advancement. The historically black colleges and universities as they balance this being in the world have never, oh, pause, I don't like to say never. Pre the end of legal apartheid in the United States, the, the deep structural racism, white supremacy, particularly in public education in the South, set aside budgets for HBCUs, which were minuscule compared to the HWCUs, but they were consistent in part driven by you not coming over here. So counsel at uh, president of uh, Alabama State, and I won't talk, I, won't, I don't wanna talk about HBCUs in terms of pres college presidents, because again, a university is the faculty and then the students who come to that faculty. And as you say, the job of administration is to enable that process. So the trustees, the president, the administrators, your job is to enable that learning and teaching and growth process. But a university is the faculty and the students. Full stop. Full stop. And then administration is supposed to have those other functions. Um, because black colleges have been a little different, you have seen administrators assume roles that are extensions of the governance formations and ways of knowing. 
and they have created tensions at the moment. So, for example, in the case of Howard University, the first black president, Mordecai Johnson, who was elevated to the presidency, he was recruited to be the president of Howard in 1927 because students went out on strike and alumni were in the uproar because the, the white presence of Howard had become increasingly austere. And the last white president of Howard, Durkee, was just off the chain. He's out here beefing with everybody, Kelly Miller and Elaine Locke and them. And so the students was like, nah, chief. That's it, baby. We got to have a black president. You know what I'm saying? But Johnson, in, during his tenure, was faced with those moments you're raising, Professor Hunter, in, in, in a couple of ways. And I know this is not what we're talking about this morning, but it kind of leads us into this larger conversation in terms of this white Juneteenth weekend or July 4th, have you want to? No, actually, it's a little different. I don't even call it white Juneteenth because you can't elevate, you can't compare July 4th to Juneteenth. And there's some reasons for that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Continue what we talked about last week. But Johnson faced those moments when, because Howard's budget was and remains tied to a federal appropriation, which is extended on an annual basis. So you got to go sing for your supper. And there were moments during the, the tenure of Mordecai Johnson and Howard, particularly in the 1930s and 40s, as the U.S. social structure continued to ramp up what eventually becomes a full-blown propaganda war against socialism and communism. The assertion that Howard University was harboring on its faculty communists. And in the case of cats like Doxy Wilkerson, <laughs> that is absolutely true. <laughs> Member of the Communist Party, working for the Communist Party, eventually leaves Howard to go full time with the Communist Party, basically a revolutionary. I mean, you got damn it, Dorsey and some of these cats. These are some of the people who end up in this conversation they had at Amenia in New York when uh, Spingarn invites everybody to his resort, you know, kind of this kind of forerunner to the kind of thing they do now where the Ford Foundation or the Mellon Foundation or Kellogg Foundation pays for everybody's flight and hotel, brings them somewhere halfway around the world to talk about the crisis in Black America. But at any rate, uh, Johnson having to go down on Capitol Hill and sing for the supper is accused of harboring communists. And his thing is where there is freedom of speech. So we need this money. I expect you to give us this money, which after all is our tax money, but we're not going to get into that. And I'm going to play the game I have to play, but I ain't getting rid of no faculty and we ain't taking no books out the library. That That's a moral stand. Now, there are moments, Joyce and Dory Ladner, and we were talking about Miss Dory, uh, uh, Karen briefly by text this past week. And uh, Miss Dory, shout out to Miss Dory Ladner and went to her 80th birthday party the other day. She just turned 80. Her birthday is on the 28th. Uh, her comrade, a man she faced death and 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 faced down the clan with, uh, who she was always lovingly uh, teasing of and critical of, because I love to watch these SNCC elders. She was in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, of course, from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Dory Ladner, her sister Joyce Ladner, was one time the president of Howard University. Miss um, Dory uh, turned eighty, still with us here in the D.C. area. Uh, on the 28th, the day after that, the 29th, last Wednesday, was, of course, Kwame Ture's birthday, Stoley Carmichael, her friend. And uh, I laugh about that when I think about that, because she and her sister, Joyce, participated in protests out of Mississippi, and they got put out of Jackson State University for the reason, because these HBCU presidents, to, to what you're raising, pre-apartheid, you know, they've got to protect their budgets. And you saw something very similar happen at the school I went to, Tennessee State, in the 1950s, where you saw Walter Struther Davis, one of the great HBC presidents of the era. You know, they expelled these black students who participated in, in the Freedom Rising, participated in the protests in Nashville, which we consider, quote unquote, moderate 
city. Well, those students were eventually uh, rewarded. They were awarded with their degrees. They were elevated and venerated. But that happened like 15, 20 years ago. Joyce Ladner was invited back to speak at Jackson State commencement only like four or five years ago, three, four years ago and got, you know, but they got expelled. So then they went, and y'all know Jackson, Mississippi, know exactly where I'm talking about. They went, not even cross town, it's down the street, really, to Tougaloo, which was a private HBCU, which was known for supporting the student activists differently. So they ended up going to Tougaloo. But I'm, I'm saying all that to say that, that 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 balance that Black college administrators, particularly presidents and boards, had to walk is a very real balance. And it isn't as... It isn't as stark. The contrast isn't as sharp. The division isn't as sharp as we have been socialized to talk about it. Because as you mentioned in passing, Professor Hunter, and for those of you who may not have caught it, I'm just going to mention what you said a second ago, again, to make the point, you know, but for the timing of a few months and a couple of dollars here and there and a promise to go one place instead of the other, William Edward Burgard Du Bois would have been on the faculty of Tuskegee. So we talk about Booker T versus WB. They they agreed on a great deal, including the fact that most of our people would never see the inside of a college. They agreed on the on the proposition that those who do have an opportunity to go to college must now serve the greater group. Where they disagree, whether it be on vocational education, the role of the intelligentsia, all this kind of stuff. Uh, where they disagreed, what you found is those in the social structure who found themselves more readily able to use the Washington philosophy, which emerges out of Hampton University, echoes of which echo to this day, because William Harvey, the president of Howard, uh, Howard, Lord have mercy. People talk about the real HU. I said the real HU is Harvard. But at any rate, in the social structure that we find ourselves immersed in, if y'all want to battle it out over uh, Howard versus Hampton, I really have a dog in that fight, because as I told the students in Morehouse and Clark and Spellman uh, and, and, and Morris Brown, a few years ago, um, when I went down there, my friend Sam Livingston and David Wall Rice asked me to come down there, and it's out on YouTube somewhere. I, this is actually a, of the kind of public conversations I've had with young people at HBCUs. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, you know, I was like, y'all know this is one HBC, one big HBCU, right? And then it was like, mm. and I said, I know y'all don't believe that. Then they all started laughing, but it is. It ain't, it's one big HBCU. I'm sorry. I know we all set trip, but it's one big HBCU. But anyway, the president of of Hampton. President Harvey just retired uh, this year. And the echo of that Washington philosophy, which really comes out of Hampton, which is really Samuel Chapman Armstrong, uh, the, the racist who is the founder of Hampton and friends with another army officer, Oliver Otis Howard, who is part of the constellation of army officers white army officers coming out of the Civil War who find themselves in leadership and driving the birth of and the creation and the development of some of these early black colleges. Clinton B. Fisk, Fisk University. In fact, uh, Walter Dyson, in a book that's out of print now, it's called Howard University, the Capstone of Negro Education. It is the, is the first, there's another little book, there's a smaller book, I, I had to, I, I'm not going to get up and go look over there on the shelf where I keep the HBCU histories, but Dyson talks about this curious phenomena of these white military men at the helm of 
these HBCUs that come out of the Civil War. They all weren't founded by Black people. So the shorthands that people use in USA Today or the media or on the website, HBCUs were founded by Blacks. Stop. And it wasn't all missionaries either. It wasn't just Henry Morehouse and Atlanta Baptist Mission, home mission, at which became Morehouse. It wasn't the white Baptists who created Spelman uh, in, 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 a, in a church basement. It wasn't just the, uh, the white Methodists, Clark. And it wasn't just the black Methodists, whether it be the Methodist Episcopal Church, which is where you got a lot of those schools that are named for black people, including Morris Brown in Atlanta, Shorter College, uh, Lane, which is the Christian Methodist Episcopals, uh, whether it be AME Zion, Livingstone College in North Carolina, so forth and so on. It's also some of these military cats because black people are still in that moment. And I would argue to this day, in many ways, the shock troops for public policymaking for people who have other motives. So. When you see a Washington whose philosophy seems more malleable to the Andrew Carnegie's, to the Randolph's, to the railroad barons, they're going to pour money into Tuskegee, but Washington has taken that money and it isn't as simple as I'm going to create a space to stay out of white people's way while I try to, you know, do some other things. He, his faculty was black. So if you are that hardcore against a certain thing, a notion of progress, a notion of blackness, then why would you try to get W.E.B. Du Bois to join your faculty? You know, Tuskegee had as many or more black people with terminal degrees or graduate degrees as any school in the country because he was collecting these people. Never forget George Carver worked at Tuskegee, whose politics could be considered from the outside kind of neutral, but his contributions and his shaping and his enabling and, and helping and supporting Black folk who never saw the inside of a college really can't be denied. And never forget, Monroe Nathan Work was at Tuskegee, the Director of Research and Records, He's a social scientist out of the University of Chicago, brilliant brother, Savannah State, then comes over to Tuskegee, spends his career there, and then hands the ball off to the Division of Research and Records, where he kept the tabulations on lynchings. So if you're going to talk about lynchings in America, you might start, conceivably, with Adabelle Wells Barnett out of Mississippi, and then you see pulling up alongside her and continuing in that work, Monroe Nathan work at Tuskegee, the division of, in fact, the Negro yearbook. I'll, I won't go over there and pull off one. I'm going to pull one. You know why? Because I'm about to, let me just pull one. Because they're kind of hard to find, but I see one right here sticking out. And most of mine are in storage, but here go one right here. This is the ne Negro yearbook. It's the Negro yearbook right there. And that's 1921-22. Hold on. Hold it up again. One more time. The Negro yearbook, you see. Let me uh let me be careful because these books are very fragile. I'm gonna say that looks yeah. This old. is the uh look at that there. The annual encyclopedia of the wow. Negro. Monroe Nathan Work, director, Department of Records and Research, Tuskegee Normal. Is that a mm. that looks like an original? Oh, it is. It is. Absolutely. So they're out of print. They're yeah, out of print. That's so valuable. Yeah, no question. No question. And most of my now, but, but the reason I'm raising this ain't even for non-Monroe work. It ain't even for non-Monroe work. Those of you not yet in Nubia narrative, and we're working on some other stuff in a minute, you know, as Dr. Uh, Dr. John Henry Clark used to always say, I'm always working on something else. And as Professor Karen Hunter always reminds us, we just getting started. The you should know, we got to add this name. I've mentioned her before, but we have to add her, uh, Jesse Pankhurst Guzman. Jesse Pankhurst, Jesse Guzman took over from my real work after my real work passed. My work so is buried in it. Let's, 
let's let's do it in Nubia. Let's yeah, we're gonna do we do we can do it in Nubia. I'm, I'm just gonna mention I'm just mentioning her because in, I'm gonna tie this together and cat we in the July 4th weekend, so this all actually ties together. The um she took over after he made transition. Monroe work, his wife, are buried in the same little cemetery with uh, George Carver and Booker Washington's buried there. And I've stood at their graves many times. Anytime I come through Alabama, go to Tuskegee. You know, my mom was born about 45 minutes from Tuskegee campus. You go over there and pay respect to those ancestors. But um she continued that work. She also ran for office in Tuskegee. In fact, I was looking around for the history of the Tuskegee Civic Association, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. I couldn't, couldn't put my hands on it in a split second here. Uh, as you started talking, I started thinking about how we could shape this in terms of this July 4th piece. But she was the most educated person in the town of Tuskegee, one of the most educated ever in the state of Alabama, to run for office. She held graduate degrees. As I said, she was an academic. She took over the, she was working with Monroe Work when he, he made transition. She continued that work, the Negro Yearbook. But I'm bringing all that up to say that Booker Washington hired Monroe Work. So the public face of Booker Washington, when we read up from slavery, when people write papers and they talk about ideologically between the, the battle between Du Bois and Washington, and we've talked about that. You know, we talked about that in class over a year ago. We we went kind of into detail about the meeting they had, a secret meeting at Carnegie Hall that uh, Herbert Abdecker writes about, uh, where Du Bois's people, Washington's people are there. They agree on a great number of things, and they come together. They said we're going to create a working committee out of this meeting, continue. But Booker Washington, always the cutthroat politician, stacked the committee, and the beef broke out. Then you got cats like Monroe Nathan Work, who was just like, I ain't messing with Booker Washington. I don't give a damn. And then he kind of pulled. This is where you get this Niagara movement split comes out, and you got to pick a side. But Washington's raising money. Wait, you see her? No, 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 no. I what? I, I just wanted to pop in because, you know, from July 4th, which we did last year, um, and I, I just, you know, as we're in this space, we are stacking, we're building. So those of you who, you know, want to get a full history of, you know, Frederick Douglass speech and all that, I just want to direct them that. And I just want to also tell no, them, I, I, borrow, I borrowed the speech uh, from in class with Carr, so it'll be on the radio on Sirius XM. So I'm, which one? The, the the class we had last year on oh good perfect perfect so perfect. people who are in serious XM are not in Nubia not a narrative perfect, perfect. or you know well, th well actually I'm glad you said this is a this is a challenge of I'm going to use the academic language only because I kind of reject it but I want people to know that you know why I reject it there's a lot of talk about the archive people talk about the archive. And it's an important concept, a repository. I have to agree with my friend Paul Lee out of Michigan. The print, the recording archive is only as valuable as the living archive. So if you're not going to sit with it, if you're not going to, so yeah, we won't, we won't repeat what we've done because that's in the archive. But if it's in the archive and it's never accessed, it's never had a conversation. We have over the last two years, probably if we never had another session, there's enough in there to keep us busy forever because even the passing, somebody wrote down Jesse Guzman. She, they're going to look them up. And then if you follow her, you're going to find all kind of other stuff. And that's where I'm going to come back again. Voting rights is question of Gamillion versus Lightfoot. Dr. Gamillion, Charles Gamillion, who lived in Tuskegee, part of that civic association, part of that black upper class in Tuskegee who didn't mingle with the black working class, the farmers, the people of Tuskegee, but what brought Gamillion in to make that lawsuit that becomes Gamillion versus Lightfoot, and we're going to tie all that to these recent Supreme Court cases in a second, Dr. Gamillion and them 
Miss Guzman and them, my role working them, they don't really have to, we don't, we can't think of blackness within our governance formation as a monolith thing. There's a class dimension there, but what forces them into this conversation in part is the segregated education in Alabama and in Tuskegee is affecting all their children. And you can't get an education policy making without participating in voting. And as they gerrymander them out of relevance, Gamillion files the lawsuit that becomes Gamillion versus life. But in fact, I was just rereading uh, a, a, a kind of oldie but goodie. Oh, man. Um, uh, it's by uh, Norell on the Tuskegee Civic Association, which is a good book. But I prefer to go back to the records of it and the previous. Well, I had to find it another time. Oh, man. I thought I brought it in here. I got up to bring it in here. Yeah. I'm sorry. Anyway, the point is, y'all know how I am in about 15 seconds. I know. I know. I'm like, and it's going to bother you until you find it. It will. But but I'm not going to. But I'm uh, uh, no, I'm going to stop because that's telling me I don't need to show y'all Charles Norrell's uh, book. But the point <laughs> is that the that civic association, Jim Crow forces, let me just tie this, this section together and then we continue in this conversation. Because again, this is, you know, we're in July, 2022, Supreme Court just had all these decisions, but it all really does tie together. The, um, the Tuskegee Civic Association, the work they did there is part of this continuing struggle within our governance formations, our governance structures of defining not only who we are, with what we want, how best we can pursue it. And the higher up you go in the social and economic class within that governance structure, the more likely you are to encounter Black folk who are constantly saying, are these the rules? Yes. Well, if these are the rules, I'm going to play by them if it advances me and then advances my community. And then once they realize that there's really no way to break through for everybody by following the rules, the crisis that that generates often spurs people into action. But how that how they act after that continues to be determined by their schooling, by what they've been immersed in. And so to hear, you know, uh, this you know question of who we are being driven by somebody who was raised in a certain class position, or at least advanced to a certain class position, to say, okay, these are the rules, and they realize, wait, I was lied to, I was hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray, run amok, and then, okay, now what you gonna do with it? Well, I'm gonna challenge it, okay? Now, what? Now, how, do, how does that relate to, how do it free us? Well, ultimately, I think that if I continue to do this and continue to do this, we will realize the promise of American democracy. Ah, you drove it in a ditch! <laughs> no, let's be clear, because the, what you are saying to them and by them, I mean a social structure elite. What you are arguing about the fact that slavery is in the foundation of the Constitution, it's in the foundation of the settler colonies, what you are saying about apartheid being in the foundation, guess what? I don't know if you know this, but, uh, bruh, they, uh, yeah, they, uh, there's really no other way to say this, um, they already know. And you find it out and arguing with them and then building spaces for us to think about it. And then those spaces get archived and not accessed, ever accessed. A new documentary, I, I'm going to watch it and I'm thinking I'll probably do what I always do is annotate, annotate anything I see that's new, new. <laughs> uh, 
I annotated with model working Jesse Guzman or Ida Wells. In other words, if you've said something 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, and nobody reads it, right? if you're robbed of the momentum of memory, then you say the same thing in 2022. And then your master, come on, who you never stop shouting out, I went to Harvard, who you never stop shouting out, then awards you because they never lose the momentum of memory, but they want you to think like you came up with it. So they give you an award for saying something your ancestors said years ago and Monroe Work and Jesse Guzman kept a running tally of lynchings. Don't you think they may have added Jalen Walker's name if they were still doing the Negro yeah. Yearbook in 2022? My point is that when you don't remember, you don't even know that not only are you unoriginal, but you're being used. And guess what? They already know. This is last week's New York Review of Books. Oh, my God. And there is an argument in here. And I had to laugh. You know, I had to te text Angie Porter and, and Valethea Watkins because they, they meet weekly to discuss all this legal stuff. I love they got they got like a private roundtable. They be talking. <laughs> this is uh, James Oakes and Noah Feldman arguing over uh, a review that Oakes did of Feldman's book, The Broken Constitution, which I showed y'all a couple of months ago. I'm not going to go try to find it now. It's called was emancipation constitutional an exchange and i mean the sh i love the shade see this is why you know, law students and lawyers and legal scholars know this the shade in legal opinions is usually in the footnotes so Feldman says to uh says to oaks in a footnote nearly every time oaks says the book ignored something and there are many it is the subject of extended discussion often of many pages if Oaks himself did not read the book, the fact checkers ought to have done it for him. Anyway, I mean, so he's but he but what 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 Feldman runs through is that slavery is in the foundation of the Constitution. Quit trying to make Lincoln a hero. Let me give you one of them and I oop joints. He says, uh, he says, uh, as a matter of his own political faith, Lincoln embraced the Constitution of 1787 and with it the slavery compromise. In 1838, as a young politician, he invaded against would-be dictators who would seek fame, quote, at the expense of emancipating slaves or enslaving freedmen. In his first inaugural address, the one that isn't on the Lincoln Memorial, he stated bluntly, quote, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Then he goes on after, and as I'm reading, in my mind, I'm footnoting my man. The great, forced into glory by Lerone Bennett Jr., who the whole Lincoln Mafia came for when Lerone Bennett Jr. is taking him out to lunch. But then Feldman, driving his car 100 miles an hour, except his car is coming from the social structure. He's not driving in the ditch. He looks at the fork in the road and realizes ain't no fork for him. It's one highway called America. He says... He says, my book precisely challenges the old now crumbling consensus that supports the suppression of the truth that the Constitution enshrined slavery and that the Emancipation Proclamation had to break the Constitution to end it. Lincoln's greatness, there it is, Lincoln's greatness is that in the crucible of war, he changed his mind about the constitutional compromise broken by secession, broke the Constitution by emancipation, and opened the door to the moral constitution of the Reconstruction Amendments. Denying the constitutional legacy of race slavery deserves our own capacity to imagine the necessity of constitutional change when it is required by circumstance and moral 
judgment. I'm gonna pause here so we can walk across this bridge to where we are today. Given the fact that we spent the first hour today talking kind of broadly, beginning with this question of how how what we're building is different and how we're just getting started and moving into this momentum and thank uh, momentum and thanking each other and thanking all of us for this consensus driven this 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 organic bringing our brick process of building. And then continuing that into a comparative kind of analysis or at least description of how this social structure kind of often diminishes our capacity, particularly if you go higher up in the social class order, to imagine what liberation looks like for us, how do it free us, so that people make choices out of the best intention, out of schooling, that is superb by the social structure standards, but nevertheless reinforce this oppressive structure because all that schooling doesn't end up in transformational change for the masses of our people who ourselves have challenges trying to define who we are. And so the third part of that first hour kind of concretized here is that the revelations we often have personally and individually and in small clusters that are then curated by a social structure that sees a benefit in presenting these moments of revelation and resistance to revelation, by the way. Because ask yourself, of the names you've heard of people who are considered like thought leaders in black communities, how many of those names do you know because white people oppose them, not because of what they wrote? But at any rate, that process then of curating even what would be ostensibly governance gestures is in the face of a social structure that already knew. That will, at the end of the day, never concede space to any objective that doesn't co-mingle with their ultimate objective. And make no mistake, the ultimate objective of the United States of America is to maintain its current structure. The ultimate objective of white world supremacy is to maintain its dominance. So if at some point you can't continue to run the myth that, um, that slavery and anti-Black oppression and anti-Indigenous oppression, if you can't continue to run the myth, that that wasn't in the constitution and that even though it was written in there, what the spirit was very different and we made all this progress. If you can't continue to run that myth, then like Noah Feldman, you will say it's broken, but then you will drive that into the last sentence I read, which should give you some context. Let me reread it. He says, Lincoln's greatness is that, pause, Lincoln's greatness. You see that? I know he was a racist. I said he was a racist. Yeah, I said he didn't care about slavery. I said he preserved, yeah. But let me end this. Keep going. Lincoln, you, he's a racist, he's a racist, he's a racist. You come, now you got a fork in the road. You can go with me or you can go with yourself. You indecisive, now you drove it in the ditch. American to me, you're gonna drove that American diving. But I'm just driving on. Lincoln's greatness is that. In the crucible of war, he changed his mind about the constitutional compromise broken by secession. Facts. He did do that. Broke the constitution by emancipation. 
in the Emancipation Proclamation, the whole thing, this whole argument is whether or not the Emancipation Proclamation was constitutional or not. The argument that it was constitutional argues that this was under act of war. This was under times of war. This is basically James Oakes's whole argument. And I laugh because when Angie Porter was the editor of the Howard Law Journal, she and her comrades uh, took down James Oak on a, Oakes on a book that he wrote before. They just, man, they murdered him. It was hilarious. But at any rate, uh, and, and, and she Lethia laughed about this when I screenshot, I, 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 I took a photo of this and, and, and sent it to him because um, they don't waste their money on the New York Times review of books. But, you know, sue me. But the point is this. Oakes' argument is that it was constitutional because it was an act of war during wartime. And remember, and so Feldman's argument is that the, um, the Emancipation Proclamation, part of his argument is, the Emancipation Proclamation may not have been constitutional. Why? Because slavery was in the Constitution. The Confederate States of America seceded from the Union or tried to secede. The Civil War is to prevent that. They seceded, but they won't bring them back. And remember, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, let me go to the next sentence, um, next part. So again, Lincoln's greatness is that in the crucible of war, he changed his mind about the constitutional compromise broken by secession, facts. Broke the constitution by emancipation, no. Why? Because the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free Africans in the places the federal government still had control, not in Maryland, not in Kentucky. Uh, so in other words, not in Virginia where they had already taken the land back. In fact, it carved out places in places like Louisiana and other places where they had control. So Lincoln didn't free the Africans he could have freed. Go on. And open the door to the moral constitution of the Reconstruction Amendments. Pause. Yes, it did open the door to the moral constitution of the Reconstruction Amendments. Let us never forget. Let us never forget. Lincoln lived to sign a preliminary draft of the 13th Amendment. I've seen that document. Traveled to the New York Historical Society one time when it was on public display to, to look at it and then went upstairs to the Liberties exhibition on how Africans fought throughout the hemisphere for liberty in the 18th and 19th century, including the Haitian Constitution and others. And I thought it was a great irony that while that exhibit was on the second floor and I got the exhibition catalog over there somewhere stacked up, if it's not in storage, on the second floor, on the first floor is the actual document of the 13th Amendment. Lincoln did not live, however, to see the 13th Amendment passed because it hadn't been ratified by the states. And never forget, Lincoln took that bullet thanks to John Wilkes Booth, who, if he were alive today, would have stormed the Capitol on the 1st of, I'm sorry, on the 6th of January 2021 and faced no consequences after all. you got to keep the project together. Don't drive it in the ditch. Don't drive it in the ditch. You're going to drive it in the ditch, aren't you? Y'all going to think these people are going to behave. Don't you know they will never behave? But the point is that once Booth killed Lincoln, This was April 8, 1960, I'm sorry, 1865, as Gerald Horn writes in the counter-revolution of 1836 in Texas and places like that, they looking at the surrender in Appomattox in April, the death of Lincoln, whatever. That's just a pause. We're going to regroup and continue the Civil War in Texas. And we got the French puppet government in Mexico. We're going to continue this thing. So when you say, Brother Feldman, that it opened the door to the moral constitution, the Reconstruction Amendments, don't forget that the 13th Amendment was not law. When Gordon Granger sailed into, into Galveston Bay and read and had his lieutenants read Special Order 3, General Order 3, that said, all slaves are free. You have the right to contract. You had all the rights white people had, in turn, including making and enforcing contracts. 
stay where you are and don't come over here to the army lines. That was, of course, the thing that we celebrated on so-called Juneteenth. But there is no 13th Amendment when Juneteenth. Well, he went farther than the federal government. Why? Because by law, the 13th Amendment has not yet been passed. And you know how they could pass the 13th Amendment? They could pass the 13th Amendment, y'all, because it was required that the states they had defeated had to ratify before they could be readmitted. There will never be in this country, at least not in the foreseeable future, a capacity, because remember to amend the constitution, you gotta get a supermajority in the Congress and a supermajority in the states. I'm gonna come back to that in about 60 seconds. Open the door to the moral constitution of the reconstruction amendments. Yeah, you know who opened the door, waving the 4-4? I always say it's Confederacy, don't hit me no more. Black people, black people took that damn emancipation, stuck it on the end of a bayonet into the tune of almost 200,000 men and all the women who could not serve directly, but who like Ariel Tubman fought back, forced the Emancipation Proclamation into law, into a military order by beating the hell out of the Confederacy, who surrounded Granger when he sailed into Galveston Bay the majority of those troops that came into Texas with him were black. So people say, uh, Granger read the Juneteenth order. Sure did. And you think that's the first time black people in Texas heard they was free? All them black soldiers, you don't think as they was marching through? Hey, man, it's over, baby. It's over? It's over. Damn, where you get that uniform? I'm telling you, I'm out here murdering everything moving. Really? Yeah. We're about to go kill some Confederates now. Here, Put that hoe down. And if that boy hit you again, in fact, where is he? Pow! Okay, you free. In other words, don't think that a man read, a white man read a piece of paper on a veranda and we, yeah, no, hell no, dumb black troops. One of my best students I've ever had, Ava Wilson from Texas, Dallas, Texas, wrote her master's thesis on this subject, talking about how these black soldiers spread their news. So Lincoln, you ain't free nobody. We freed ourselves, bro. And then you did when Juneteenth is, is put into the public memory and when you start talking about the moral constitution the reconstruction amendments you don't get 13 you don't get 14 you don't get 15 except that this is a condition of war to bring those states back into the union finally he says denying the constitutional legacy of race slavery deserves you're right it does deserve what does it deserve Feldman? deserves our own who is we our own capacity to imagine that's true i think it's what right robson is a, you know who we are to imagine okay i'll go that far with you the necessity of constitutional change. Okay, that is necessary, but can can you make it happen? Let's see. You got an electoral college and uh, a system of representation in, in the House of Representatives and the Senate, U.S. Senate, which precludes consensus by enshrining white minority rule from now, well, as they say, on. They continue to imagine the necessity of constitutional change when it is required by circumstance and moral judgment. Don't play. Professor Hunter, uh, we talked a lot about Pauli Murray. Pauli Murray, one of the founders of the National Organization of Women now. Pauli Murray, who talked extensively about the 14th Amendment, particularly when she was at Howard Law School, told her Professor Spotswood Robinson, they're going to end segregation within 25 years. I bet you $10. He said, I bet you $10, no problem. Spotswood Robinson ended up being one of the lawyers who argued Brown versus the Board of Education, and Pauli Murray collected her money from him in 1954, not even just a decade after she was in law school, give me my money. Okay, here's your money. Damn, you was right. And you the one argued it, but who said it's the 14th Amendment we should be 
focusing on equal protection under law, which was supposed to resolve the dilemma of Dred Scott, which we could talk about another day. But ultimately, Pauli Murray, who helps draft and influence what becomes Title, and eventually Title IX, Title VII is really the one she dealt with in terms of Civil Rights, of, Civil Rights Act of 1964, which says you can't discriminate by gender. Pauli Murray, who is who puts the intellectual wings under Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who then is going into court, who is seen as the face of this kind of advancement of women's movement. You got to go find Pauli Murray, but I'm bringing her up at this moment, Professor Hunter, because there was something she fought for to the end of her days called the Equal Rights Amendment. Do you remember the ERA? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You remember that, right? Yeah. Do you remember whether or not it passed the United States Congress? It did not. Um, and I think oh, it, it passed the Congress. It went down to Pennsylvania? It, no, it, yes. But it could, no, it could not be, the Constitution couldn't be amended. Why? Be because it's only step one. Okay, because I thought it had to be ratified by a number it of states. It does. Exactly. Right. This is why you can't fix this constitution why let's see what's the rule what is the rule for amending the constitution of the united states has to be ratified by a majority of the states how many states constitution amendment may be proposed let me just read let me just find it and read it an amendment the amendment may be proposed by a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress, or if two-thirds of the states request one, by convention. You could do that, constitutional convention. Ratification. So this is how it happens. Can you get two-thirds of the states? Now? Today? Yeah. Uh, no. Not. <laughs> and you would. they had a better chance of adding the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution in the 70s and 80s than they did today. You see, when Samuel Alito, an exquisite racist, says in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health that we're going to return the issue of abortion to the people, Go talk to Brother Robinson. He made a whole documentary on who we are. There ain't no we. And you know you're racist. That with your help, you racist. That there is no the people, but the system you've set up has made it virtually impossible to amend that constitution in any way that will speak to, what did North Feldman say? The uh, circumstance, moral judgment. <laughs> You know them amendments that gave us the capacity to not be in the field no more? They passed during wartime when them states where most of us were enslaved were out and you made a condition for them coming back in. Now, if you can pull that off again, say that you don't require their votes except as a condition for readmission, because they definitely want to leave again. But see, unlike 1865, they you not it ain't gonna be no civil war like that this is the cold civil war now you celebrate that period as the moment when america came together and yes there was bloodshed but now we move for here you go with that damn myth making and that's why people with good sense who have come with an analysis to understand what this is when you ask them what the solution is whether at the end of a letter or during the documentary and i won't judge that i'm gonna watch this documentary you drive it into a ditch why because 
you can't articulate for public consumption what must be done. Hmm. Because what must be done is to literally create something that has never existed. And I know the rhetoric says we got, but then you, the, the, the rhetoric of creating something that never been existed in, that has never existed in the United States is consistently couched in the fabricated language of aspiration, a more perfect union. So let, 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 let's let's pause here for a second. The revelation. Well, go ahead, go ahead, jump in. No, I thought when you said let's pause it, you know, today is the birthday of Megar Evers, as you were. Megar Wally Evers. I mean, we, we've talked about him, of course, extensively over the last two years, but we've never had an in class on his actual date of birth, uh, oh, no. 1925 on this day. But, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, voting. So we got to vote, I guess, you know, what's, what's the solution? But we're still, you know, we have to do so many different things. I feel like we're playing a game of Twister, you know, yeah. like a hand here, foot there. We got to vote. We got to vote locally. We got to also have some sort of uh, new form of, you know, if we need a third party. Do we blow this whole thing up? Do we let America fail? Like we we have so many things to do at the same time. How do we educate our children in this uh, this system? Uh, and then we got to work and feed ourselves. It's like a lot to consider. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. And, 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 it, and it begins with what we're doing. Well, uh, yeah, it does. What we're doing is part of, oh man, I was hoping, let me see here, if I, uh, I was reading the papers yesterday and I was on the train and I chanced upon a Spanish speaking newspaper, Spanish language newspaper, Spanish speaking, a Spanish language newspaper, and they had a picture of Kataji Brown Jackson being sworn in. And they were saying, you know, Negrita, whatever, the first black. And I'm saying, damn, let me see, because I don't have Spanish. I got enough Spanish to pick out to be able to, you know, and that's just on me. I got to sit and resume study. So, but I'm looking for some language on Sotomayor and I don't see none. Now, I know Sotomayor would be considered a white Puerto Rican, but I'm saying even the Spanish speaking papers are not catching yeah, first black, but again, we are in the straight jackets that white nationalism, white supremacy put on us. It, at least gesture toward, and then of course, what I did see was they talked about the number of women she after, of course, Senator O'Connor and then Ruth Bader Ginsburg and now Elena Kagan and uh, the Handmaid and um, uh, and Sotomayor. And here comes Katanji Brown. So they talk about the women. I'm like, yeah, but. You know, but two of them women now are white, although, yeah, you would consider Sonia Sotomayor white, but she's Spanish white. <laughs> Meaning that, you know, the white Spaniards in her bloodline still got the, blood, the touch of the Moor from 700 years, and she's from Puerto Rico by way of the Bronx. As long as we accept these straight jackets. Now, if you ask Dapper Dan, who he gonna rock with, Sotomayor Kataji, he gonna say Sotomayor. She the one came to me the day before and said, look, I'm with the feds, we gonna bust this place tomorrow. I'll give you 24 hours to get your shit out of here. I mean, in other words, <laughs> she's in there talking down there. Sonia Sotomayor is, now Sonia Sotomayor did turn around and say, well, I respect Clarence Thomas, man, cause she on the court. Sonia Sotomayor in one of these decisions uh, sided with the police, but for different reasons. This is the Canadian border decision where they basically say the police can bust in your place without on fourth amendment. And she said, I don't agree with that. But I do agree in terms of a civil suit, you can't run it through the First Amendment. So she concurs in part, dissents in part. But this 
this realm of possibility begins with us doing what we're doing now because without being able to have a better grasp on where we are, we won't have a language to, to struggle. That, that, that's all I was going to say about it. I mean, the, the, the collision, the collision that is July 4th, that we were very clear about before the end of the Civil War, what to the slaves of the 4th of July, Douglas speaking for millions that can't speak for themselves in those public venues, which is why Douglas begins the what to the slaves of the 4th of July speech with fellow citizens. Why have you called me here today? I love how he opens up with fellow citizens. <laughs> now, mind you, Fred Douglas escapes enslavement uh, right up the road from here. I'm south of where Douglas escapes enslavement, enslavement right there on the eastern shore of Maryland, Harriet Ross Tubman, Araminta territory, Fred Douglas, Frederick Augustus Bailey Douglas territory. He escapes enslavement, gets to Baltimore, gets that train going up there, worried like hell the whole time you know, travels around. There's a price on his head for years. And we talked about John Brown, how they looking for Fred Douglas at the same time, how people raise money to purchase him, you know, so technically he would be free. So when he comes up and says, fellow citizens, he's in the rock by then, New York, or he's traveling, living in New York State, he's been to London, whatever. Fellow citizens, why y'all call me here today? You see, when you see me, when you see me, you see them, all them people, that I'm here to speak for who can't speak for themselves in this venue. And I like to tell my students at Howard, I imagine the arguments Douglas must get in when another formerly enslaved African named John Mercer Langston, who was the Dean of Howard's law school in the 19th century, was proposed to be the president of Howard University before Mordecai Johnson, this is the 19th century. Fred Douglas was still alive. Fred Douglas was a trustee at Howard University, which President Frederick mentioned in his letter yesterday, which I thought was good. He said, uh, you know, that about Douglas. But I, I imagine, I tell my students, I imagine what that board meeting was like when they proposed that John Mercer Langston be the president of Howard University. And Douglas supported that. And those white trustees voted against John Mercer Langston, even though he had been the interim president for over a year. Langston resigned from Howard at that point, went back to Virginia, came back to D.C. as a congressman. You can't make it up. But I mean, but, but I can imagine, I tell my students all the time, I say, imagine if Douglas was arguing with them white boys, and then as they talking, well, we don't know if Langston, he's been running the place for over a year, yes, but you know, we, we want to, we need a Christian, and, and as they talking, Douglas is unbuttoning his shirt, like, what the hell, you going to get our ass? And then he, then he takes off his shirt, and, his, and then he just turns around and says, you see that back right there, you see the marks? Me and John Langston knew the whip. The hell y'all talking about now i know that didn't happen because douglas is much more dignified than that but i tell the students this is where the rubber meets the road we're gonna really let these people talk to us about morals i don't give a damn if you're in a congregationalist church and general howard you know i don't give a damn about you you chased chief seattle all the way to the damn pacific ocean so you know you gets no break from me christian general but the point is this july 4th that collision that we understood before the end of the civil war after the Civil War, the project of the social structure is to rein us into this pro uh, project, this experiment, that, like people like to call it an experiment. How do we continue the continuing American experiment? Okay, let me just pause here for y'all. Because you Negroes talking about America as an experiment, let's just imagine a metaphor of the lab. All these white settler colonists in with lab coats, Bunsen burners test tubes. They're experimenting on the Native Americans. They're experimenting on you. They're experimenting on each other. 
they burn each other at the stake. Salem witch trial. Shout out to Sam Alito for quoting all them damn witch burners in your uh, Dobbs versus Jackson women's health. See, some people read Sam, 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 you chef's kiss racist. And so in this metaphor, we in the lab, we, meaning white men, he's been in the lab, you know, this kind of thing. White women in there too, but they lab assistants. They, you know, they, they get to hold the test tube, dump out, and somehow you Negroes have imagined yourself with a lab coat on and some test tubes. Are you in the experiment now? Or did, did you build a lab for yourself? No. So you in the same lab they was in. Yeah. And so they gave you three test tubes to hold and made one of y'all a scientist. And now this is part of yours too. This lab got to be closed by order of the people. But see, when we say the people, we talk about different people than Sam Alito. When Sam Alito says the people, what he means is if we can break this up at the federal level, we can throw it back into the state apparatus then we can ensure that it never happens in this country. So when Feldman and Oaks are arguing on whether or not the Emancipation Proclamation was constitutional, the argument that it was says, I mean, that it, that it was not, says that you can't free the slaves because in the Constitution, slavery is in the Constitution. You're gonna need a constitutional amendment to free them. And you got one, the 13th, that you were only able to pass the threshold for ratification because the ones that would have voted against it gotta be let in on condition that they approve it. You forced them by military law. Them days is gone. Hmm. Them days is gone. So if you're gonna do it again, you're gonna have to rely on demographics to flood these states so that, and then that's not enough because the demographics flood, you can still brainwash enough of them now white people to think they voting against, they're voting against their interests and they think they're voting for it. This is where education comes in. So July 4th is one of the threads that you use to reinforce this myth-making that this is an experiment, that this is aspirational, that we are better than this. So Robinson asking the right question, who we are, who are we? Well, I'm gonna tell you, there ain't no we. And the questions then become, here's where we come to the practical effect. And last week I thought was just excellent in terms of what we were talking about. In terms of, you know, with Larry and this question of education and particularly young people in education. Here's, the, here's where we face, and I'm kind of kind of keep this very rapid fire, but succinct, but, but clear. We are in a social structure that has always been on the verge of dissolution. Meaning that the founding of what is called the United States of America, 1776, the thing they're going to be standing in front of Independence Hall on Monday reading proclamations and stuff. And I've been down there many times. Every time I would go down there with my freedom school students, I would carry a copy of What to the Slave is the Fourth of July and point out that passage where Douglas said, they that carried us off captive required us of us a song. How can we sing our song in a strange land? If I forget the old Zion, may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, even as we watch the black choir singing. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That's a beautiful song. Black troops preferred that song. I prefer that song to that raggedy ass anthem that has in its lyrics the fact that the British was arming black people and therefore we gonna kill them too, the hirelings and slaves. That's in that Star Spangled Banner you Negroes love so much. I'm sorry, I should, nobody here. I'm talking about them Negroes who love it so much. Um, the 
black choir in Philadelphia who probably will have in their repertoire on Monday. You know, he is sounding out the battle horn that never called retreat, He's sifting out the souls of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. You can understand why out of a way of knowing those black soldiers preferred that song. And they had other songs where they told the history of how they ended up in the damn military in the first place because them white boys was losing the war. My favorite is one of the marching songs. Richie Havens made a remake of it years ago. It was from one of the um, one of the black troops, United States Colored Troops Divisions. And they talk about how John C. Fremont, who was leader of the military of the Union in the West, as he was encountering enslaved Africans, he said, y'all are free military provision y'all free and then lincoln from dc wires fremont calls him back you're relieved of duty like i don't have the power to freedom slavery's in the constitution slavery's legal. you can't be out there he said man it's wartime <laughs> so the soldiers made up a song called give us a flag and it said fremont told them how when the war had just begun how to save the union the way it would be won, but old Kentucky had its way. See, there was slavery in Kentucky and Kentucky hadn't left the Union. And Abraham Lincoln famously said, in this war, I want God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Shout out you feckless old ghoul, Mitch McConnell, Charles Booker gonna take care of your ass though, if we do what we're supposed to do. So again, Fremont told him how when the war had just begun, how to save the Union and the way it would be won. Fremont said, arm the Africans. I'm freeing them. Let's arm them. Lincoln's like, oh, I can't do that. The Constitution, the slavery is legal. And I want those states, I want those states to come back. This is what Thelman is writing about in his book, The Broken Constitution. It was broke from jump. <laughs> but old Kentucky had its way. A.B. had his fears. Now they call for the help of the colored volunteers. You couldn't beat them white boys just for white boys. You give me a gun, I'm murdering everything moving. Might murder you. Because <laughs> I ain't going back to slavery. Second verse, McClellan, another racist. McClellan said, I don't want no black people in my army. He's in the East, Fremont in the West. McClellan, who ended up running against Lincoln for president. McClellan. McClellan went to Richmond with 200,000 brave. He said, keep back the niggas. The Union, he would save. Little Mac, he had his way. The Union's still in tears. Now they call for the help of the colored volunteers. <laughs> Their brothers is like, we'll tell you the history in our song. Cultural meaning making. But that song is only as good as we remember it. Because if it's in the archive and we never heard it, that's what you call movement and memory. How did or do we remember that? Now we talk about, you know, Ferris Bueller and Morgan Freeman and Andre Broder and Denzel Washington with a single tear down his cheek as he's getting whipped in glory. Take that movie very politely, no problem. Throw that in the trash and go back to the actual records. We read Blake in Nubia or the Huts of America. Understand how these Africans talking to each other. Delaney was the first major in the army. Delaney told Lincoln, you give us black troops and black men to be their officers. We will end this war. Douglas, salty. Why? Douglas wanted to be a major. Lincoln and Douglas was friends. They argued, they friends. Man. Why you give it to Delaney? Lincoln's like, shit, Martin Delaney might kill me to be free. We got to win this war. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So 
the whole point is we freed ourselves. So July 4th, back mapping that. Remember now, let's walk back from 1865 to 1776. What W.E.B. Du Bois said. W.E.B. Du Bois, who almost worked at Tuskegee for Booker T. Washington. W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote in his doctoral dissertation, which became the first book he published in the first volume of the Harvard Historical Studies, The Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America. Douglas, who long before Noah Feldman's parents, 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 parents migrated anywhere out of Europe to come here for him to write a book on the broken constitution. W.E.B. Du Bois, who said, the foundation for the Civil War was poured into the Constitution, and no one would have looked with more horror upon the events of the Civil War than the founders of the Republic, which speaks to a simple moral point. The correct time to correct a moral wrong is when the wrong is committed. So y'all can't look for the roots of the Civil War in 1861 or 1850s. You got to look for those roots with settler colonialism. He didn't call it that, but that's exactly what he was talking about. And then he puts it in the document he says look at the constitution 10 years later 1787 when it's ratified the 13 british colonies came together arguing with each other you say oh yeah on july 4th we're going to celebrate go down if you go down on pennsylvania avenue you're going to see i may go down there myself gonna see them playing the fife and the flute and the thing i love about these fourth july parades in dc and i went down there memorial day when they had a little band you know how that, that picture we all grew up on, Professor Hunter, where they got the, the white boy got the flag with the 13 stars and they got the one cat with the rag tied around his head and the other one playing, the, he playing the flute and the other one with the little drum. Invariably in the July 4th parade in the nation's capital, Washington, the District of Columbia, one of them kids is black. Sometimes it's a little drummer. Sometimes it's a little fife player. And I'm like, I don't you love how social structure movement and memory goes. So they do have a Negro with a lab coat and some test tubes in her hand. Sometimes a girl. I'm like, y'all just make this shit up. <laughs> and then you got black children watching it. Thinking, hmm, one day I'd like to be the one playing that flute. Uh-huh. You wasn't in them for right there. In fact, more y'all fought for the British than fought for the Americans. In fact, more y'all ran away than fought for the British or Americans. Why? Because your interest in the Revolutionary War, your interest in the Civil War, your interest in the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, Korean War, your interest in Vietnam, your interest in Desert Storm, your interest in every occupation has been what? How do it free us? How do it free me? Do I get my GI Bill? Can I use my benefits? Am I going to get out of enslavement? Am I going to go home? In other words, every war you fought in, we fought in every war this country had. Yeah, Pause. Go and look at what the attitudes were in the war. Don't believe it's myth making because they're going to keep driving you into that highway. And if you don't make a choice on which road you're going to take, you're going to be in the ditch, which upside down with your wheels spinning, still talking about our country. Who are we? The point I'm making is that the collision that is January, I'm sorry, July 4th, does it tries to paper over the fact that those 13 original colonies came together to get away from Britain and that they never agreed on what the thing should be. That's why the Articles of Confederation failed. And that's why in the original constitution, certain things were enshrined. The second amendment in the Bill of Rights, the right to bear arms, was conceived as a way to preserve through self-defense the break from England. Because remember, England comes back for the rematch, the War of 1812. This is when that Star-Spangled Banner is written. 
And Francis Scott Key accuses the British of what they accused the British of in the Declaration of Independence. Read it. And I have read it many times. I've even taken a pocket version of it down at the Independence Hall when I lived in Philly. And before they have the big ceremony where they have Negro choir singing, they have another ceremony about an hour before on the other side of Independence Hall. And now they have the Liberty Bell in a new pavilion. But when they uh, had it differently, I watched them. I watched them. I ain't telling you what I read. I, ain't I, I, I watched them. I ain't telling you what I heard from somebody who was there. I watched them trot out children. I said, who are these little white children? And they would announce, these are the descendants of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> what? With little white museum glove, curator gloves on. Then they give them a little white mallet. And one by one, I watched those little white children hit that Liberty Bell. This ain't Pennsylvania Avenue Parade. So you can't have a little black girl stand in. Uh -uh. Well, you probably could, but then that would require a DNA test and that whole bloodline would go apoplectic. But at any rate, the whole point is that uh, nobody that they could just acknowledge hit that Liberty Bell. Nobody I saw. Maybe they've changed it now in the wake of Ralph Taylor and George Floyd. Then. But the Second Amendment, the Second Amendment is in place so they had a militia that could defend themselves if and when the British or the Spanish or the French or anybody come back for the rematch are trying to take the colonies. So it has been interpreted to mean everybody can have a gun. But why did everybody need a gun? Because you at a moment's notice had to organize everybody to fight because you didn't have a standing army yet with the muscle that could repel. Well, if you read, uh, of course, the case that was decided and well, the decision was handed down uh, on the 23rd of June, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus uh, Bivin, uh, Bruin rather, Bruin. The Second Amendment, according to the Supreme Court we're in now, you know, New York, 100 plus year old law saying you got to have a reason to have a concealed carry permit. These white nationalists and their Negro pet, who was also a white nationalist, shout out Clarence, which insurrectionist wife. Hey, man, you left interracial marriage out of those rights that you're going to overturn. I understand why. Um. They told, you know, you don't need no, you know, second, you violating the Second Amendment. Really? Let's go read the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment don't say, no, we interpreting that. Why? Because we've got the numbers now to basically create a space where the Second Amendment, we've already divorced it from any notion that, we've already divorced it from any notion that the original reading of the language would connote. We've already infused it with a, 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 an extended concept of what the Second Amendment means. And now we're going to dispatch with any notion that you can stop people from carrying guns any kind of places, including them states that you claim you want to have different. And so somebody says, well, what about federalism? The same thing that made Lincoln tell Fremont, I, you can't do that because I know it's wartime, but states have rights. Well, don't New York State have rights? No. What's your rationale? Mm, arithmetic. What you mean? We got six, you got three. What? But what about the law? Look, bro, the law is the, we got six, you got three. That's the law. No, but the Constitution, you said the Constitution. Nah, nah, you know, we already, in fact, let me, let me pause here and give you this, this is a matter. The union was for mutual defense. That was the, the grounding of the union. That's what the Second Amendment was trying to protect. But because this settler state 
because it's a violent creation anchored in a way of knowing of violence it has consistently elicited meaning drawn out of its original founding premise this notion of preserving this settler project not an experiment in any other way other than to maintain itself as a settler project now that's a racist settler project and now there's a racist settler-minded judiciary at the head of the federal judiciary in this brief existence that isn't just interpreting and by the way, interpretation is what both Katanji Brown Jackson and John Roberts said they're, the job of a judge is. Let's read the language. Let's interpret the language based on precedent, based on plain language. Okay, that's cool. But that's precedent, that second part, it works best when you are being faithful to how things have changed over time. Remember that 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment? Due process, equal protection. We talked about it last week when Larry was here. You basically interpreted substantive due process out of it. But that's not in the Constitution. That's based on politics. It's based on how the judges are making decisions. So you're not just interpreting. You are eliciting, meaning drawing out from original context, meaning. And this is the irony of the decisions we've seen this current Supreme Court term. They derive from eliciting not only from the original language, but from the way of knowing and the intellectual and cultural thrust that informed that original language. They are eliciting. Let's go through them right quick. We talked about this a lot, so I'm just going to go through some of them very quickly. Um, Files versus Jackson, we've talked about that. There's no right to privacy. What? Yeah. Well, but no. You made that up. It's a penumbra. It's a shadow. You cobbled together some interpretation from various amendments. And then you, so then Alito is like, yeah, you, you, you made that up. Clarence Thomas like now, now wait, Clarence. No, hell no. I'm writing my concurrence. Uh, LBGT2, LBGTQ, we come for you. IE plus, I don't care how many letters you put it. We coming for you. Ain't no right. Gay marriage, we coming for you. What? Contraceptives. Even Sam's like, hold on, man, not yet, not yet, not yet. He writes that in the majority opinion. This doesn't apply to the rest of them. Clarence Thomas like, you bullshit. Oh, we got that. I can count. 6-3, right? 6-3, right? John Roberts, wait, where you going? Where you going, Johnny? Oh, bro. Oh, okay, fine. 5-4. No problem. 5-4. But we got the numbers. And he left out interracial marriage again. That's just, Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, Egbert versus Boulay. They decided that one on the 8th of June. That's that fourth amendment, unreasonable search or seizure, uh, exercise, uh, excessive force case, civil case, where the boy had a little in smugglers in on the on the U.S. side of the Canadian border, and the police bust up in there with no warrant. They're like, it's cool. Why? Because border security, even they had border security. Where is that in the damn Constitution? So the mayor is like, hold on, chief. I get you on the First Amendment piece. Maybe they couldn't file a suit there. But on the Fourth Amendment, you dead wrong. But I guess Sotomayor would be sensitive to that. But the whole point is, Fourth Amendment? Nah. Police do whatever the hell they want to do. Of course, you got the Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. That's uh, Judge Justice McConnell Gorsuch sitting in the stolen seat. You know, this white racist 
football coach. I'm sorry. I shouldn't call him a racist. I'm sorry. This white Christian nationalist football coach, same thing, at the 50-yard line praying. He could do that. He's a state employee. Is it violating the separation of church and state? Hmm. But he could do that. He's doing it in the First Amendment. It's his right. Okay. But see, here's the problem, as we talked about last week. If you're a coach, you got a lot of uh, influence over your players. You might bend somebody if they don't get on their knee, too. Whatever. Supreme Court says he got a right to do that. Well, can they punish him, the school district? Can they fire him? No. But he's a state employee. Yeah, but, but watch this. Clarence Thomas concurs. But Clarence Thomas, again, he chomping at the bit. Read his concurrence. This is what Clarence Thomas said. He said, no, what, I agree with the outcome. I agree with the First Amendment. But what this court doesn't do is define what is the, uh, what are the limits of public employee rights and how do you balance, how does a, a public employer balance those First Amendment rights against the interest of the public employer? I'm thinking somebody might read that and think, oh, that's, that's rational. Okay. <laughs> Watch this. You got to read Clarence Thomas's decisions on prisons and schools to understand why he concurred. You see, what Clarence Thomas is not, he's not saying that the white Christian nationalists can't pray and that there may be services. What he's saying is now, if you bring your black ass out there and try to do a Vodun ceremony, the school might have a way to stop you. Because what he says is that First Amendment rights are diminished when you bring in other interests in like prisons or schools, free speech. Clarence Thomas is basically setting a marker to say, I know you think, that's why I'm telling people, y'all should go out there and do Santeria, bring them, everybody, the Muslims need to pray, the Muslim coach. But then they may ride in and say, yeah, the Muslim coach is different than a Christian coach. Why? Because, you know, the history. See, this is the reserve clause they have in all these interpretations of the history of our country and tradition of our country. That's why Alito jumped over slavery, jumped over everything, and went back to the damn Salem witch trials and brought through, they banned abortion. You know, yeah, the history, which is why, in dissent, Stephen Breyer, now happily retired, like, man, I'm out of here. Kataji, you got it, sis. I'm out. Said in dissent, in he said, how y'all just going to jump over all the history and pick the history you want, Amy Comey Barrett? At any rate, continuing, um, we can think about American Hospital versus Bacara. That was uh, on in the, 5th, the 15th of June. Unanimous. They reversed the D.C. Circuit. Health and Human Services can't separate reimbursement scales and rates for prescription drugs without first undergoing this review of all of the rules, all of the different standards people have. Okay, that's fine. It was unanimous. No problem. That only becomes a problem when you get to West Virginia versus the EPA, which came out last week, saying the Environmental Protection Agency doesn't have any power to regulate these coal burning factories. Now, Biden's overseas. Biden is overseas. <laughs> Biden's overseas trying to help, telling the world that, oh, yeah, we're we working on climate change. We got to curb climate change. The world laughing. The U.S. don't even got that kind of muscle anymore. China trying to lead. Hong Kong, they just celebrated, you know, Hong Kong coming back to China. You're seeing the anniversary. They're talking about Hong Kong is becoming more and more China, like main, uh, mainland China. Macron got this left-wing uh, insurgency and right-wing insurgency in France, but the guy who just took over the finance committee in the French government is a known anti-capitalist, anti-neoliberalist. So you might see some change there. Uh, they just sworn in Marcos in the Philippines. But that's another point. 
the corporations though are realizing even corporations globally are realizing that the current model of pollution and public pushback against it is making it unsustainable let me see if i have the financial times yeah his financial times from yesterday you probably saw this press on it utilities hot water tim's water t-h-a-m-e-s tim's river the uk's biggest water company announced yesterday that it was raising as much as 1.5 billion pounds in extra capital from investors, including the UK's biggest private pension fund, USS. Painful, but at least all investors participated. When Southern Water received a $1 billion emergency equity injection last year from Australian infrastructure manager Macquarie, existing investors were heavily diluted. I won't go through the... The reason they had to raise this money, Tim's Water, the biggest water company in Great Britain, private company, it's because they got hit with a fine by the regulators in Great Britain because they was dumping raw sewage into the river and people are now up in arms. They marching, they protesting, they pushing on the elected officials. Again, why, 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 why am I voting? Voting's just one tool in a strategy. In fact, there's a good book if you want to talk about what happens and not happens. And uh, there's a book by Daniel Gillian called The Loud Minority, Why Protests Matter in American Democracy. You know, it isn't just voting. It isn't just protesting. It isn't just organizing. It's all of those tools. And they've got enough of a critical mass in Great Britain to force the government. They pass regulation rules and they clamp down. And so Tim's now got to raise this money, which means end of the article, it says this. Shareholders. I'm sorry, let me do. Investing in monopolies with inflation-linked revenues has obvious appeal. This, this is the paper record for the money people, right? But mounting public anger over pollution will force the slowpokes to clean up their act. They have to raise that money now because they got to clean up the mess they made, Tim's water in, them, in, the, in, in the water. Last sentence, shareholders should be braced for higher investment and lower returns. The goal of corporations is to make money. A couple of people in this fall docket is going to raise that up in the Supreme Court. While the Supreme Court is undermining the administrative state, which has been a long-term goal of the Koch brothers and all the billionaires who John Roberts helped in Citizens United pour money, 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 money into these elections so they can buy senators like that feckless uh, cosplay coal miner out of West Virginia, Joe Manchin, and half the rest of the Senate, over half, because Mansion and Cinema talking smack me. We got to get rid of Mansion and Cinema. See, Mansion and Cinema are the two you got focus on. But if you get three or four more seats, you might find there's some other ones in there been hiding behind them. So you say, well, then we shouldn't vote for them. But no, that means you need to bust it out as far as you can because Alito is trying to return it to the people, meaning what? The white minority rule set up by Electoral College and the way representation is voted on in this country. And at the local level, gerrymander is continuing that. Y'all look at this Wisconsin case that just came out. Wisconsin Supreme Court basically telling the governor Wisconsin, you know what? You ain't got no appointments. And the, and the white nationalist party that has gerrymandered the super legislature in Wisconsin, when somebody's term expires on a board that the governor appoints, they simply will not confirm the governor's uh, uh, nominee. And the Supreme Court of Wisconsin on a partisan vote, it was 4-3 this week, said yeah, well that person who is in there was in there before, they can continue to serve. And the governor's like, I nominated somebody they won't ratify. Supreme Court white nationalist judges, four white nationalist judges said, yeah, well, they are, they do represent the people. And so that's the will of the people. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. They're going to break this damn thing finally because it was never, it was all stitched together on a lie. So continue this attack on the EPA. 
kind of previewed with the one I, I mentioned before, the one with the uh, HHS, which they all agreed on. This is an attempt to rob the administrative function of the executive, whether it be EPA, whether it be HHS, whether it be HUD, whether it be Department of Education, you can't tell these states what to do. And while the world is trying to figure out how the species can stay, and while in other countries they cracking down and trying to crack down, and while Biden is over there at the G7 and them saying, we're trying to do through, here, the White Nationalist Party got the administrative function of the EPA in their sites, and they're like, we don't give a damn. We just, we, you know, we'll be in hell or dead or in heaven, but we're going to get this coal money, and you can't stop us. And they got a White Nationalist bench who is going to help them now, Vega versus TCOC. That was the 23rd of June. That's where they said that, yeah, you ain't got to tell nobody named Miranda rights. They can't sue you under 1983. That's the civil side, but they're going to come for the criminal side. So you can throw away all them law and order uh, TV shows where you had the right to remain silent. They ain't got to read you that. They are chipping away at Miranda. Now, of course, um, and there are other ones we could talk about uh, that Kennedy versus Brimpton, I, I kind of talked about as well. Berger versus the uh, state NAACP. That was the 23rd of June. Voting rights. Take it back for 30 seconds to Tuskegee. Remember, uh, Dr. Gamillion, Professor Guzman, Parkman Guzman, the Tuskegee people fighting for voting rights in Tuskegee in part because they can't control anything local or public, education, anything else without getting in the arena. And Tuskegee is a majority black town. And these white boys in Tuskegee gerrymandered the whole city of Tuskegee so that they created this multi-sided kind of uh, uh, multi-sided image that somehow excluded all the black people in Tuskegee from voting in Tuskegee. Gamillion went to court. It's the famous Supreme Court case, Gamillion versus Lightfoot, where they say this violates the 15th Amendment. You ever ask yourself, the 15th Amendment guarantees the right to vote. Why aren't more Supreme Court cases filed under the 15th Amendment? Why are they going to the 14th, equal protection? It's all based on judicial interpretation. Anyway, we'll, we'll come in. Burger versus North Carolina State NAACP. That was the case where the, the Democratic governor of North Carolina, Democratic Attorney General of North Carolina, refused to defend the racist gerrymandering uh, law in court in North Carolina. So these two members of the White Nationalist Party say they want to intervene in the case because they think it should be defended. Well, the White Nationalist Supreme Court agreed with them and said, you don't have to be the governor or the uh, attorney general who are the elected representatives of the people. So Sam, Sam, you racist. Sam, Sam, I thought you said the people. Well, the people changes depending on how it, how, how it advantages my people. See, in North Carolina, the people mean them two members of the White Nationalist Party who want to uphold a racist voter ID law and the gerrymander. Oh, okay, I understand. The White Nationalist Party locks in opportunity when it can. The people depends on who you're talking about. Uh, Carson versus uh, Macon in, in, in Maine. You can't use money, public money, for religious schools. Supreme Court said you can't. He said you got this uh, non-sectarian clause in the main law. That ain't constitutional. It violates the free exercise of religion. It does not violate the establishment clause. So the son of a you're in dissent. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? This is a clear violation of the establishment clause. You can't establish your religion. <laughs> okay. Okay. So what does it all add up to? 
it adds up to this. We have to understand that microphone also down. Bring this in for landing. When you're fighting for a better society, you can say you're fighting for a more perfect union. And if you started with a union as a criminal enterprise, achieving a more perfect union really shouldn't be your goal. <laughs> you should be trying to build a different kind of society. And to build a different kind of society, you have to have a firm grasp of the society you live in. Otherwise, you'll keep repeating the propaganda somebody else is putting on it. Oh, I should mention one other one because this is the original sin uh, case. In fact, it was so rogue that, uh, what's his name? Oh, McConnell Gorsuch got mad. And that's the most recent one, Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta. Castro Huerta was the 29th, Kwame Trey's birthday. Now, and then on the fall docket, KBJ, you've been sworn in now. You need to take a page from Clarence Thompson. And you shouldn't recuse yourself for shit. She already said, I'll recuse myself from the Harvard so students for fair admission versus Harvard. You should not recuse yourself, sis. Madam Associate Justice, do not. Because you're going to lose, but you should go down swinging. Ask your friend, Sonia Sotomayor. But in this case, um, Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta, what they said, let me just go here. This is the most recent, just came out, National Geographic. Who we are? Who is we? We are here. These indigenous people, native nations are reclaiming their lands and ways of life. This actually article was written by Charles C. Mann. Let me find it right quick. Charles C. Mann is the guy who wrote the book 1521, 1522, I mean 1492, 1493. Hold up. Oh, oh, here we are. We are here. Different Native American languages here, here. North America's indigenous nations are reclaiming their sovereignty control of their land, laws, and how they live. This is interesting. This is a problem for white nationalists. Y'all ain't got no damn rights. The only reason we signed treaties with y'all is because we ain't had a muscle to kill you all. As Gerald writes in the counter-revolution of 1836, the goal in Texas was to kill all the Native Americans and enslave all the Africans. They failed on both fronts. Remember the Alamo? Anyway, but around the North America, kill them all. The ones you can't kill, kill them intellectually. That was the whole reason of having the boarding schools. That's the schools where they found all those poor children who they killed and buried up in Canada. The indigenous schools, what they say, uh, the phrase was kill the Indian. In fact, kill the Indian was the template for kill the African. Tuskegee, yes. Based on Hampton, yes. Armstrong, friends with Howard, yes. Armstrong's attitude was you must kill the culture that these savages brought with them. He practiced in the Hawaiian Islands. He brought that philosophy to the place he called Hampton Institute. The first students at Hampton Institute were indigenous people, Native Americans, and then they converted their philosophy to the Africans. You got to kill them savage ass Negroes. Booker Washington steeped in that, started Tuskegee in 1881. In them speeches he used to give around the country where he'd pick up white people's checks. And one of the reasons they were more comfortable with him, he's like, you need to teach these Negroes how to use soap and water. And I don't know what this fool over here laying on his belly reading Greek and Latin in with the weeds pulling up around him in the front yard. And I agree with Washington on that. He should have been reading Metanetra. But what I don't agree with him on is the idea that the Negro has no culture. We get some. 
if we could just hang to you. And here come Andrew Carnegie, who couldn't even read and write when he came from Ireland, giving out money, giving out money for libraries. That's great. Giving out money to Booker T. Washington. Not sure about that. Why? I like what you're saying. I like, can you smell what the, uh, what the rock is cooking? I can smell it. And so here, the indigenous people, this the home team. They had their culture. But you tried to wipe them out completely. And guess what? You couldn't kill them all. And now they say they're coming back. Oh, I mean, just the pictures in here. If y'all get this National Geographic, it's a good one. Because you see they, they, a lot of interviews, a lot of people here reclaiming the land. They're talking about their indigenous cultures, the dude doing the sculpture. And this picture says language is part of who we are. And so who we are is trying to relearn our language and regrow as a community. Nubia, the renewed normal. We're not starting from scratch. These scholars, I've you never even visited the living archive of your grandmother. I'm so glad to hear that this brother did. And I'm saying Reynolds did, but let's be very clear. Most of us don't. And then that allows people to go into the, the written archive and say, I've discovered. You ain't discovered. Don't do that. I mean, do that. But you can't do that unchallenged. So, yeah, we're going to regrow. Why? We're teaching our languages. And then let's just look at this. Sacred parks, Chickasaw Nation. What does sovereignty mean to you? Sovereignty is the right for us to decide what we want to become. Serious business. But here's where I want to go with it with the Supreme Court case. Watch this. See, this came out, just came out, but it went to press before the white nationalists got a hold of, uh, of a case that they decided just two years ago, which is what drove McConnell Gorsuch crazy. Look at it. Sovereignty uh, reaffirmed. In the 1830s, the federal government forced members of dozens of nations to resettle in Indian territory, which became part of the new state of Oklahoma in 1907. A landmark Supreme Court decision in 2020, 2020, not even two years ago, reaffirmed the existence of the Muscogee Nations Reservation based on the eight, its 1833 treaty boundaries. That recognition of tribal land has been extended to five other nations in Oklahoma where the wind comes sweeping down. Uh -uh. And I don't care if you make an all-black cast of that settler propaganda, stick that uh, damn uh, musical right next to Hamilton. It's the musicals of the deluded. Anyway, Gorsuch say, and the Supreme Court said in 2020, all that right there with my finger, that's Indian territory. They got the jurisdiction. Man, you know much oil and gas and all kind of stuff is over there. So what did they decide last week in Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta? The rule, the 1833 treaty, ain't with any state. It's with the federal government. The treaties in the United States are between the indigenous people, those nations, and the federal government, not the states. So the white nationals of Oklahoma go to court because they can count. And they got a Supreme Court made up of a majority of people who were appointed by presidents who lost the popular election because you set up a white minority guaranteeing process called the Electoral College that will make it damn near impossible for you to break through unless you just completely organize and bust heads and get out there and, and do this work in addition to organizing, in addition to everything else, you got to vote. So in this case, these white nationalists go and say, well, there was a crime committed in any reservation, but the person who did it or the person, the victim and the person who did it, they are non-Indian. Can the state have jurisdiction over non-natives in Indian country? The answer is no. The answer hmm. is no. Mm -mm. I'm sorry. Uh, the answer in Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta is yes. 
So the majority of them like, what the hell? Gorsuch writes the dissent. Why? Because Gorsuch the one who wrote the opinion in the 2020 case. Because see, Gorsuch got, a, he's a funny dude. He a, he a racist too. But he believes that the treaties that you signed with the indigenous people, which are legal treaties, that you signed them because you couldn't kill them all, but you did sign them. This is what Gorsuch said of this decision. He wrote the dissent. It is a historic and mistaken. It is a historic. Your conscience bothering you, ain't it? Because you just made a decision that said basically the eastern third of Oklahoma is Native American territory. And now you can come back when it explicitly the states cannot intervene. And given these white boys the point of entry they need, do you know how many lawsuits about to be filed by white boys trying to get at Native Americans in their land? The point of entry, just like this civil 1983 suit with Miranda, may be a point of entry to get on the criminal side. The point of entry was non-natives in indigenous territory. But how long before that becomes the president precedent for indigenous people in the Bantu stands called reservations? This is where they're going. So when we talk about we, we have to remind ourselves on this July 4 weekend when a lot of propaganda will be put out. Most black people are going to ignore it. We teeing up the barbecue we getting ready to you know even as we over the years i believe will transfer a great deal of that momentum to juneteenth as the official start of summer and then continue it in white juneteenth known as july 4 but the reason we can't call it white juneteenth is because unlike actually it could be white juneteenth for this reason remember july 4th they're fighting against their no it can't be for this reason i'll give you one why i can one why we can't Here's the can't. They're fighting against their parents in July 4th. So I know what Mel Gibson, that racist, would say in, you know, when he make movies and have two or three Negroes throwing tomahawks and, 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 and shooting muskets, you know, and I know y'all want to talk about Christmas addicts, but let's be clear. Most black people ran away. More black people fought for the British than fought for the Americans and got everybody got sold out one way or the other. Okay, that's how some of them Negroes end up in Nova Scotia, some end up enslaved in the Caribbean, and some end up in Sierra Leone, and some do indeed end up free. Very important, but not enough so you can make a whole damn series called Bridgerton where you can cosplay like you was all Bridgerton. Anyway, the point is this. That was a family fight. Juneteenth represents, to borrow from our fam in Detroit, us versus everybody. Everybody. Right. Not just as Black Thought would say, fault versus everybody, us versus everybody, every GD body. <laughs> Understand Juneteenth is an expression of our cultural grounding. It's not about red, white and blue. It's not about an American experiment. It's about break these chains. July 4th is about break these chains, but it's break these chains from pops. Break this chain from mother country. And we got to maintain our enterprise. But we're not, we don't really celebrate that in terms of a social structure ritual the same way that they do in a white social structure. So um, I think maybe that's a good thing, a good moment for us to pause. And um, I, I'll, I'll mention one other thing, though, because I'm thinking about it just as we kind of wind up for the day. Um, this is... Um, this is the June 27th New Yorker. There's a long article in here by Dexter Filkins called Party Crasher. 
just about this cosplay racist. DeSantis. DeSantis, Florida born, Yale educated, Army veteran, hanging with the Navy SEALs, Harvard Law School. Got these hillbillies in Florida thinking he one of them. And be real careful because, Prof, you've been doing, you did this over the last week. Reminded people that you called this years ago. And that isn't, as to return to where we started, that isn't a an arrogant expression of, see, I told you so, because that's not why you did it. Then that's not why you did it now. It is it, a part of it, at least I think, and I think we know because you said it is to remind us that we must always be vigilant of how these patterns and rhythms go. Donald Trump versus Andrew DeSantis. That's an open question. Now, Mary Garland, you know, Benny Thompson, shit. Mary Garland's wife gonna be like, dude, Benny Thompson, man, you ain't gonna charge nobody, man. Bruh, you can't sleep in this bed. You got I mean, Benny Thompson. Benny Thompson living in he living in Mary Garland head rent free. He like, bruh, if you don't charge, I got everybody and people now snitches coming out the walls. Everybody abandoning hell. Before it's long, we might see Donald Trump ass in the damn chair. So, but Mary Garland still might figure out a way not to put these cats in jail. But even if he don't put Donald Trump in jail, even if he's not indicted, even if he doesn't, you know, even if Mike Pence, oh by the way, smiling Mike. I don't know if y'all have, you know, I, I bought this after I found it for five dollars. Uh, I alone can fix it. This is the Washington Post cats, Rucker and Leaning wrote this book on Donald Trump. He said, How why would you continue to read about Donald Trump? Because Donald Trump ain't going nowhere. But there's a whole set of pages in there where Mike Pence, smiling Mike Pence, that racist, is trying his best to figure out if he can return the votes to the states. Because remember, Samuel Leto wrote in that Pennsylvania opinion, which we talked about back in the fall after the election, set, sequester those ballots from Philly in case we have to revisit this later. He was trying to get them to the point where they could steal the state of Pennsylvania. Alito did everything he could. I'm sorry, Sam. I, I know, bro. I'm sorry that you couldn't do it, but you're not that sorry now because you got a 6-3. You can count. You can do your thing. But Smiling Mike is asking all of his lawyers and general counsel and senators, is there a way for me not to certify the votes? He's looking for a way. Only when it is crystal clear he can't, does he say, I can't do it. So all these white boys talking about hang Mike Pence. Mike Pence is with y'all. He did everything he could. And what they report in here is all the conversations. He goes to Lindsey Graham, who remember like uh, this fool, uh, like this corn pone racist uh, out of Florida, the governor of Florida, DeSantis, Lindsey Graham was a lawyer in the military, judge advocate. He told Pence, no, there's really no way you can do it. Because he too, all these cats, if they're traitors, are they traitors if the whole thing was set up to do this? Y'all be careful with the language of being traitors. That's probably not the best argument. It's an argument. Go ahead and make the argument. You might convince five or six white people out of the million that, yeah, and that might be enough if all of y'all vote to get you close enough for them to steal it. Okay, understand. But the best argument is it's a moral wrong. But that's hard because now you got to have to fight George Washington. Now you can't dress up like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. You got to fight them. Sorry, Lynn. Sorry, Lynn. You have to fight them. You can't keep putting yourself in the picture like you was there. You were there with your damn shirt off. So the whole point is you, you, you shouldn't make the argument 
that they're traitors, your lead argument, you're going to have to create a new thing. You have to create a new thing. So on July 4th on the holiday, as you sitting there, if they walk by playing one of them old racist ass tunes like the Star Spangled Banner and a tear roll down your eye, you should probably then, you know, come on with us and get a little bit of, you know, factual information and have a conversation. And we're going to hug you and love you and argue. We're going to have a whole thing we need, but it's going to be in a space where as that thing kind of bubbles up out of you, you vomit that poison out, you can recover from rehab and rehab from the thing called United States of America because it don't hold up under scrutiny. And we'll build something better. We'll build something better. I'm going to pause there. Oh, yeah, DeSantis might win. That's what that's what I was going to make. When you read this article, it's very clear. DeSantis could win. He could win. And I made the mistake of calling him an idiot. No, no, we all do. That's no, my point. Let me just say he's not. No, he um, is not. And, and I raised, you know, the, the reformed smoker. Uh, his family's Italian, which means they had to fight their way into whiteness. That's right. That's right. So that means they're going to hold on to that with every fiber of their being because they weren't white when they came here. So that's right. Now they got they graduated into it. He's going to make sure that that is codified. And Tom Hartman, my uh, my brother, uh, my brother, Tom Hartman has a thread that I'm going to uh, drop in the chat and I'm going to talk about on the radio next week. I was going to read it here, but social structure. No, this is us. Um, you sure? But, yeah, I mean, okay. All I'm right. I mean, I don't want to convince well, you I mean, one way or the other, but listen to your first mind. You know, your first mind often is the best mind. Yeah, I mean, and I, I want to ask you before I read this, what does re-enslavement look like for Black people? Well, we are not in child slavery, so I don't like to say we're still in slavery. No, well, this ain't... I'm yeah. asking the question because you, you just said the Supreme, the, the Constitution ratified slavery, they can go back. They can revisit everything, right? Absolutely. Everything. Well, I, 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 oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think it's fairly simple, Prof, in, 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 a, in a short answer. The reason that chattel enslavement could not be fully restored to pre-Civil War, in addition to the real reasons, which would be economic and social, you know, it's really slave labor is, you know, it's just not economically feasible. I mean, constitutionally, of course, there's the 13th Amendment. But the carve out in the 13th Amendment, except as if punishment for a crime, creates, and again, Michelle Alexander, again, no shade on Michelle Alexander, but Michelle Alexander was the police. And so she had a come to Jesus moment and it was very valuable. The new Jim Crow is a valuable thing. It introduced people. But when we have the momentum of memory, we understand that you are not making a revelation. Sidney Wilhelm and who needs the Negro, Charcy McIntyre, criminalizing a race. And you go all the way back to during enslavement, after the passage, look at the debates after the 13th Amendment. So the 13th Amendment gives a constitutionally grounded point of entry for re-enslavement. In fact, it improves re-enslavement along with the true improvement on enslavement, which was emancipation. You say, what does that mean? That means this. Remember, and Du Bois, again, this is why Black Reconstruction in America is so valuable as a book. Du Bois' big argument, basic argument is you freed African people into a market economy with no money, thereby giving them no choice but to work for you, meaning nobody left the plantation 
but now they got to pay for their own damn shoes and food. So in other words, you perfected enslavement. This is why the Juneteenth order, general order number three is so important. Remember at the end of that order, we're free. Hold on, wait, listen to the rest of it. He said, you can, you have the rights as white people. Okay, that's cool. He said, you are ordered to remain in your homes and work for wages. Them black people look at each other like, homes? You got a home? Yeah, that damn plantation. He calling the plantation a home? Are we supposed to work for wages? No problem. We can work for wages. Hell, I get some money. I'll buy my own house. Wait, wait, hold on. You not coming to make them pay us? And he's like, no. And don't come over here to the military lines. And don't be idle. Dude, we built literally that damn veranda you standing on. So the whole point is the stereotype of lazy black people. And then our response, we built the country. Hold on, that's not your best argument. You see, to make and enforce contracts, which before the 14th Amendment is passed, is in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, the same one that Byron Allen used when he went into court, which is our second time together. When I was in the studio, we talked about that. That's still good law. Re-enslavement consistent with what has happened after the Civil War, which is the constant fight between capital and labor, re-enslavement has to be fought by organizing, including organized labor. Shout out to the Amazon workers and the Starbucks workers. You got to organize labor. Capital wants no labor organized. And this is where, as Gerald Horn might say, our friends on the left don't understand. All the workers are getting screwed but you have to make allowance for the culture, the experience of the black workers, of the brown work. You can't just say it's class, not race. You can't say that because we have an experience that is distinct. That's how the reparations thing went off the rail. Re-enslavement is gonna require, fighting against it's gonna require organization. We gotta have organized labor. We gotta participate in, in, in political process, whether that means protest, whether it means rest in the vote, because ultimately if it comes down to the courts, and this is where I think they've really pushed it past the breaking point. Because anytime you start reading in the in the white face in commercial media that the legitimacy of the Supreme Court is now in question, you've now pushed it to the point where the truth will be revealed about the process of law in Western societies, which is in any human society. The Supreme Court doesn't have an army. This is that this is why they told they, shit, they told Andrew Jackson the Indian Removal Act was illegal. Andrew Jackson's response was, oh, yeah, that's good. Let's see him enforce it. And he continued with the Indian Removal Act. They are passing laws now. Look, black women, brown women, black men, black uh, brown men, stop acting like abortion is a woman's issue. Yes, it's her body, but we are together and you help make debate. What the hell is wrong with you? We are on the street. But anytime you see rich white girls out in front of Supreme Court facing the police, you got a, you're on the verge of a crisis of legitimacy. And so re-enslavement now Preventing re-enslavement now might ironically be easier than it would have been even a decade ago. Mm. And because now they have they have pushed this thing past the point where a myth-making mythology kind of myth-making thing can continue to hold it together. And what will be revealed is this was never a we. And so we just got to organize, we got to fight, and we have to do what we're doing right now, which is help people not talking to them and they just believe everything. No. Spark, as my friend Mulimu Shuja edited in a book he published years ago after World Press called Too Much Schooling, Too Little Education. And listen to what Lurie was talking about. She and her husband and the Sanity Schools number. And the thing, of course, that's being developed in this space that is that is to come. When we are educated, we we receive the spark and the fire and then we educate each other. This isn't, this ain't church. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And although church 
the best church like Jeremiah Wright and Freddie Haynes comes from people being educated and how to apply those moral values. So I think that's how that's how we push back. But but it's in the Constitution, not chattel slavery, but that exception. And then then you just see people criminal. That's why Charcy wrote criminalizing a race. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, we've seen it before with crack, with heroin, before oh, no that. you know, with with vagrancy. You know, you don't have a job. Oh, that's we'll put you on a chain gang forever. That's right. So like then we're going to remove the jobs and then you're automatically and they're going to target us. So I just we need us to be very vigilant. And I just dropped the Tom Hartman thread. Oh, I'm good. Good. Because extensively yep. on, on my radio show next week. But, you know, DeSantis is not to be um, don't don't underestimate him. He is not Donald Trump. He is uh, not Donald Trump. Yale, you're talking about Harvard. You're talking about the military. You're talking about somebody that. Keenly, his father was a person that put Nielsen's boxes in the homes. He Did you see that? Yo! He understands, he understands the market that he's in. Ken, they got a quote in here where the father tells this dude, the reporter, he goes to see him. He don't even like going to Tallahassee. They like 200 miles. He said to him, I used, like you said, I used to put Nielsen boxes in people's houses. Just to quote from Andrew DeSantis' daddy. DeSantis' daddy told the reporter, you know, it never ceased to amaze me how easily I was able to go into people's houses. He said, I would be there for hours. Will you want to box? He said, I would, I would be in there for hours. It never ceased to amaze me how easily I could go. That boy is a Frankenstein. <laughs> you understand? You're absolutely right. And, and, and another thing they talk about is he don't like talking to people. In private, if you're talking to him, his eyes glaze over. because he's, he he's a Virgo. He's a Virgo. Break it down, prop. Is that, is that what it is? Yeah, which makes it even because there's a righteousness and a rigidness with with that you know oh, i'm you not just gonna, something i didn't even think about fine. but but you know not not overly you know magnanimous but he's not but very focused on the task no question he is not to be trifled with and he absolutely could win in 2024 especially the way this is being teed up right now with biden and um i had a young lady on the show yesterday that said kamala harris should just resign because she's being set up to fail as well. But, she you know, that. resign and say, this doesn't represent what needs to happen and run against him. Somebody got to have the fortitude. Well, I mean, and this is maybe, maybe we talk about that in, in a couple of months or when, I mean, is there is there any pathway you see to her getting a nomination? I mean, Harris yeah. hadn't proven she can win a uh, a primary yet. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Bold moves define people. You know, like that's a good point. I'm saying, like, Damn, you know, that's a good point. If she were to resign, huh? Something different. I mean, you know, we're so fickle and so easily as DeSantis's daddy show. You know, so easy to change. Yeah, yeah. People's faces. You just and then you got the Twitter sphere and the Twitter claps and the hands and stuff. Do something because nobody's like rah rah Joe. You know, like nobody. So no. all it takes is somebody to do something because, you know, the Easter egg roll and the Juneteenth parties are not going to, yeah, that's not, that's not going to get you with, you aren't the heir apparent because now you're like Carter. Biden's like Carter, right? Inflate, hyperinflation, gas issues, rumors of war. We got a whole. He's like uh, Carter without the, uh, without the moral. Kind without of, the moral compass. Cause yeah. you got a whole history of doing dumb, uh, you know, that's racist right. things. On top of that, and now right. that's you know, damn, yeah, that is actually, 
that is in you know and i tell my every semester seemed like i had this with our students pick my law students i'm like we are living in the most impactful moment to be studying the law but it seemed like for the last three four five years every year has been that year so are we moving closer to the because something like what you just described as a possibility for Kamala Harris would have been unthinkable even two years ago. But now it's it's on the edge of the realm of possibility if she could just do that. But she won't. She won't. No, probably not. But then again, you know how this is. Fate takes a turn. Clarence Thomas disappeared for a couple of weeks, a few months ago. I mean, you know how you know how nature sometimes comes in and says, "Okay, that's enough." And remember now, but no, but if, if nature took its course, she she doesn't have to. It, it would have to be. She would have to do something. Do you know what I'm saying? You she can't. Would. You're not going. You know, have a, a death your way into being the heir apparent. That's not because 2024. You're up against a whole, like you called him a Frankenstein. I think that is very apt. You know, he's got all of the 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 you know those crazy people that follow trump will follow him oh no and question about it at the elite he understands yeah. how to navigate corporate america mm. also, you know he's got that ivy league skull and bones thing going y'all not see it i mean he's everything trump is not because trump is you know i, I don't think the man can read right he's morally bankrupt <laughs> which the sentence is not you know it's like they not everything in fact this article talks about because you as we know he did a couple of terms in congress that's when you met the Koch brothers, Sheldon Adelson and stuff. And what they talk about is how he, how they clicked immediately. I mean, so they don't talk to everybody. This boy here, he got to them and they was like this. So you're absolutely right. He's got the, he's got the collage. You think how you give Disney the middle finger? Like this is that? what you're talking about. Those kind of bold, like that. Who gives Disney the middle finger? Like who tells Disney go, like y'all, this we're in, we're in a very interesting time. Read that Tom Hartman piece that I dropped in the chat Thank because Tom, Tom sets it up for like not even if DeSantis loses the popular vote, which he probably will, because there are more Democrats than there are Republicans. Yeah, don't, but don't it's like more college rooted in enslavement system. Now they've teed it up to show you what states' rights will look like, and if if individual states don't ratify your votes and then give them your electoral college votes, give them to DeSantis because they have the right to do that. The, your state legislatures, which is why that is so important. And we That's don't right. vote enough for those people. And so we have minority rule there all across the country in those Southern states in particular. The, in fact, I'm, uh, yeah, the, you're right. I mean, I think this is, I mean, but just like in that book I was mentioning last week about red state blues, the, it's very difficult to to take back entitlements once they've been once public dollars have been encumbered. So even though they control many of these state legislatures, it's very fragile. It is. It is very fragile. But the Supreme But they're beating us into apathy. So there I, it is. There it is. There it is. I'm not voting. I'm not voting. I'm not there voting. It is. What is my vote? What is my vote? You know, we're hearing that refrain. Anybody that's saying a vote with somehow sellouts. Not people who actually live in a world that we know how these these things work. So what? Tell me what my vote. You know, you got whole ass rappers and stuff. What is my vote getting me? You know, come on. Yeah, absolutely. Ah. I mean, and and understand the frustration. You're right. I mean, again, you know, we you just nailed. I mean, again, you and you. This is what you. I use the word preach in a very limited concept. This is what you 
Kate all the time. You must be engaged. You must be involved. If you say I'm not, not voting, well, then what are you doing then? It's besides saying I'm not voting. Are you organizing? Are you putting people again? I mean, I saw Latosha out in the street, you know, uh, at one of the protests here in the wake of Roe. And, and in fact, she was on the cover of New York Times. I'm reading New York Times. I'm sorry, look, 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 I mean, I don't know who the photographer took it, but I said to myself, somebody will say, Why are you out here with these white women? What are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, so if you don't agree, that's fine. Let's talk about it. Don't just sit and say no, because many of the people saying no, you're going to be the first one to poll it. Understand when they say they ain't got to read you your Miranda rights. Understand in that case that on the Canadian border, when they went in this cat's place and then he says, you have violated my First Amendment right, my 14th Amendment right. Here's the problem. They didn't arrest him. But then they went, the police, and sick the IRS on him. And then sick the, in other words, this is, the police are acting in a retaliatory fashion. And they go back to what you raised 15 minutes ago about, you know, how does re-enslavement work? Again, the car belt is for except as punishment for a crime. If they're looking to hang something on you, do you understand? <laughs> this is not, oh man. So if you're going to argue against it, have some points, have some research, have some experience, but don't just sit there and say, what good does it do me? You tell me. No, that is, that is, that is indescribably, indefensibly lazy. That is slave behavior, quite frankly. No, 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 I'm sorry. Slaves work. No, um, yeah. Yeah, slaves work. So I'm, I don't know what kind. That's just, that's just being completely lazy. Get up and find out. And as you find out, you realize because everybody's saying voting don't do me that. Where you going, man? I gotta go down to DMV and renew my license. Hold on. <laughs> why don't you? Why are you going to DMV? Just drive your car, man. Right. right. Yeah. Just drive without a license. You don't need a license. You don't need a license. You don't need a license. In fact, go in the store and just take the bread out, man. What the hell? It ain't no rules. You understand? You talking about why vote? Okay, why pay your rent? After that landlord, you got a gun. I got a gun, Second Amendment. Okay, we well shoot them when they come in your house. No, now somebody's sitting there thinking nobody here, but that's a good idea. Okay, <laughs> you ain't anyway. lied. I'm laughing because you ain't lied. I knew you said there was some same people that think that you know. You could talk crazy about black women and get lifetime achievement awards. But anyway, I, I understand Viacom looking at y'all like, boy, y'all fools, y'all thugs like BT and black. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> All right. Listen. Um anyway. uh, and, that, and that's why we're reading Octavia Butler um Maroon, um, um Maroon's Best tomorrow. Monday office hours. Uh and let me tell you, those of you who want a blueprint for what re-enslavement looks like. Catch up, read, read Parable of the Talents. You'll get to see what that, what that looks like. And it doesn't have to be legal. See what no. I'm saying? All it has to be is ordained by the person that is sitting in the, like we saw with, with, the, with the insurrection. That's right. He, he, you know, it wasn't it, legal, but he was like, yo, y'all got guns. I will see you at the Capitol. Yo, can, can you imagine it? I mean, I know we didn't talk about this, but can you imagine? This man said, take down the scanners because they're not here to shoot me. And he was right. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Barack Obama telling his sirs to take the scanner oh. down? <laughs> no. Or Joe Biden, for that matter. This man's such a white nasty. He told those people, take the scanners down. And he would have been okay. And I love how the propaganda machine tried their best. You know, I was talking to my uh, my teaching assistant, Miss Carter, who um, 
because now that, that was my that that was my one concern so what y'all not gonna do y'all can have this freshman seminar class because all that i'm trying but you not going to expose to vulnerability any of my students now i won't i'll never i don't really care what y'all do i mean I, I, it's not impeding but you're not going to you know anyway so i was talking and she's 26 brilliant young sister out of philly you know her advisor jules harrow one of the great black psychologists you know me and mario on her dissertation committee work and, I, and we were talking and i said you know that white girl that testified that was sitting outside of Trump's office working for Mormon, she's the same age you are. I mean, just thinking about that, you know, there's a running joke on Capitol Hill, a lot of students, you know, the, the, the United States of America is run by a bunch of 20-somethings. When you see that white girl, since she's 26 years old, and people say, oh, she's courageous, that white girl was with them too. Oh, please, please do y'all understand? Oh, I was sitting there. No, you were sitting there when they had the damn Muslim ban. You were sitting there when they told and took them babies from their masks. This got to be a problem because you got worried about your own safety. Why are y'all acting like these are heroes? Now, we appreciate you saying what you said, but when she said that he tried to grab the steering wheel and tried to choke the dude out, and then they tried to go drudge up somebody to say it was a lie, we see the Secret Service then confirmed it now. I'm saying that dude is what you said. He's crazy. DeSantis ain't that dude. And you're absolutely right. He DeSantis will retain all of them crazy people that follow Trump and the millionaires and the never Trumpers. See, that's the other thing. People think they never Trump. They were like never Trump. We ain't say never white nationalism. I know Bill Crystal ain't no he uh William Crystal is not a hero. Urban Crystal's son. Urban Crystal's son don't know it with no public policy. If it slapped him in the face and knocked his dentures out. What he knows is he's a neoconservative. You understand what neo anyway? We won't get we can talk about that another time. But yo, on Monday night. We said, uh, I think last minute, because we're doing this week by week, we're supposed to finish Parable of the Talents, but we are going to, because it is the white Juneteenth holiday, <laughs> there may be some people who may not be there. So it's probably be the same thousand plus. I think we were like 13, 1400 the other night, but it, it may not be. So we'll give people, you know, he may be returning from travel and then we'll just extend it by another week. So we'll continue to talk Octavia Butler and then go into uh we'll finish for sure not this monday but the following monday that'll give us another all right and, uh, shout out to all of our nubians who are in new orleans even though i'm, I'm struggling with supporting louisiana at all uh trigger state um That's and, is that what you mean yeah i see a lot of i see reese i'm following her uh, timeline sfs hey yeah. i heard that uh all them restaurants they got a list do you know the list Professor I, I know nothing. I know nothing. I'm just no, no, talking. I'm saying there, there's a list, apparently, I only glanced at it because I haven't really been on social media much this week, but apparently a lot of the white restaurants in New Orleans closed because of Essence Fest, and they really? said they're taking a break. Yeah, but Black people for the last few years have been making a list of all the places that closed so that when all the people who are not from there leave, the Black people who live in Louisiana won't patronize them, and I know there's a list. Oh, I got <laughs> Yeah. That thank you. They thank literally you. are closing for now. I remember when they used to do that for Freak Nick in Atlanta, the Greek picnic in Philly. They did okay. it in Virginia Beach. They don't want our dollars. They don't want us. Oh, oh, another thing is they put in the hard cap, you know, the tip joint where they put it in before you sit down, that kind of thing. Like white people and black people tip. I mean, yeah, apparently that's the thing. Reese would know for sure. But all right, well, I'm definitely, I'm definitely gonna follow up with that. Cannot wait. And um again, happy birthday, Mega Evers. Happy um, birthday, Mega Wiley Evers. I may go by there and see Mega Evers one day. 
this weekend. Well, I think that was on our list, our, our plan to maybe maybe for his hundredth, because I know we we you know I'm still 25. trying to figure out how we put you on the road. Oh, we're gonna do that. But the Mississippi uh, Civil Rights Museum is right around the corner from Mega Rivers House, so I think we should hit it both. Sure is. I agree. Um, I agree. That be amazing to take people through through your lens through his house where he was shot to death in his drive. You know, question. Oh, Texas relays. Look, they put the, the Nubians are putting it in the chat. They okay. do it in Texas relays. Okay, yeah, yeah, good. We need to put the list is publishes. It list okay. is published from what I understand. Okay, all right, I'll find it and then I'll yeah. read it off. Uh, oh, damn. Business in Indianapolis do it. <laughs> you know what? Uh, yeah. Support us. Yeah. yeah. I, and guess what? Our dollars are more than enough. They actually support whole major companies and whole industries. Mm. Our dollars are, are the most valuable. So let's no uh, let's let them know how valuable it is by withholding it for people who don't uh, share our values and don't right. care for us. That's so right. All right. No, love you. Love you too. Gonna, yeah, we could be moving on. That's what we're doing. Austin. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Have, um, so let me say thank you to you, Dr. Carr. Appreciate no, you. you and all the Nubians. See you on the Nubian streets. And I'm going to share share this before we leave. Um oh, you found it. Yeah. Ricky Havens. Fremont told them when the war had first begun. How to save the union the way it should be won.